You listen to Garage Hammer, episode 103. On tonight's episode, the manlings talk about the possible end of the world at the hands of that sorcerer Nagash, as well as how they deploy their armies for battle. And then they actually give you the left brain segment that they promised you last episode. <laughs> Day late in a dollar short, I promise you that. All right, now shut it! I'm listening to me show! Welcome to the Garage U Tools for the next three hours or thereabouts. We're going to do the best we can to inform, entertain, and perhaps have a laugh or two along the way. Bringing you paint, deployment, and if we have time, the end times. I'm Chris U. And I'm Guy Fliegman. Nope. Oh, come on. Really? You, okay, think about that one. I know you've seen this movie. Guy Fliegman? Yes. Okay, you know what? Think about it. it maybe it'll come to you at some point. It's there- not going to come to me. Oh. A name like that, you're, you either know it or you don't. Oh, really? Okay, see? Okay. I tried to go a little easier. I picked a movie I know you'd seen, but we'll we'll go through that. But you know what? Before we talk about my silly name contest, why don't we take a moment and thank our sponsors? Yes, sponsors. Maybe you know the name. Maybe not. Uh, but thank you anyway to Unique <laughs> Gifts and Games located in where? In Gray's Lake, Illinois. Mears Miniatures. Building bigger. Oh, no. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, building what? Building nothing. Um, building M-I- a better future? <laughs> there you go. Building a better future through fancy miniatures. M-I-E-R-C-E, miniatures. Mantic Games. <laughs> building bigger armies. <laughs> and Battle Phone. Protecting your... Army. All right. Yes, yes. Well, now that I screwed up just about everything it's possible <laughs> to screw up on this show... That was a well-crafted uh, sentence there. Very nice. Uh, just, ugh. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm tongue-tied today. This is pathetic. It's, you know, I'm, I should be better than this. It's, it, You know what? I'm back to work, and that's the problem. Ah. Yeah. It's, uh, that'll, yeah, that'll always trip you up. It will. It will. So. Uh, so enlighten us. Uh, Guy Fliegman is this week's. Uh, who was last week's? Uh, last week. Uh, actually, you know what's really funny? Is last week's. The the episode went out, and within two days, shout out to Dylan Mosley, who emailed me and uh, knew it right away. That was Val Kilmer's character from a field called The Salton Sea, uh, a really fantastic movie where Val Kilmer has sort of a double life going on there. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really bizarre because it's one of those movies that it's it's one of those watch them once movies mm-hmm. like it's a really well crafted amazingly well done film is it like a uh, a, a drama slash mystery it's a it's definitely a drama is it the one where he stars with then with his wife who, who was then at the time his wife uh, i think i think she was she played Sorsha from willow oh okay that redheaded girl yeah and she was yeah it's it's one of his okay. yeah I've I've seen parts of it here and there. Yeah, it's uh, it's really it's one of those movies where you watch it once and you don't necessarily want to watch it again because it's kind of depressing. <laughs> okay, but uh, no, it's it's the Salton Sea. It's a great movie. But the guy Fliegman, I guarantee you, when this episode goes up, the, we will get it'll be right on the 
Someone will answer on the forum pretty quickly because this is one. I will tell you, remind me during the commercial break, and I will let you know. And you'll be like, oh, man. You might not say okay. it, but you will not. Trust me. Guys, okay. I'm, I'm well, in, in the meantime, maybe if people want to chime in and voice their opinions on such matters, how could they do that? Uh, you could either – well, I, I, the preferable uh, format is just going to the show thread on our forums and being the first one to post – who Guy Fliegman is. Uh, otherwise, um, like Dylan just emailed me and just said, hey, it's from the Salton Sea. And I was like, yes, because I thought that was going to be way too hard. And uh, somebody got it right away. But he's the type of person who he says he likes watching those really sort of smart drug films. You know, people who have these, you know, sort of addictive lives and personalities. Great movie, though. So I'll let that one go, I guess. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you though, you're gonna guy, you're gonna, you're gonna trust me. You're gonna be like, oh my goodness, yeah, I remember right, that. Right. I'll so, take your word for it. So, shout out to him. And um, speaking of shout outs, guess what we've got this week? We got a shout out. We've got a voicemail. All right. And if you would like to leave us a voicemail. You can call us on our voicemail at 1-757-GH-SHOW-6. That's 1-757-GH-SHOW-6 or 757-441-4696. And if you're an international caller, most countries, 001-757-GH-SHOW-6. So we got a nice voicemail here. I'm going to play it right now. Everybody listen up. Hi, this is uh, Rocky from the St. Louis, St. Charles area. I've been listening to Garage Hammer for probably about, oh, six months now. I started with 40K, and uh, I didn't really want to, but that's what everybody was playing. I listened to you more, and it inspired me to build an army. Uh, I'm playing the Skaven, and I'm loving it. I love what you guys do. I'm going back and listening to all the reviews, and... It's great. I'm having a lot of fun. I'm just having a, kind of a hard time finding people to play with, but it's okay. Uh, I, I will stick with it, and heck yeah, here comes Nagash. <laughs> here comes Nagash. Very interesting. So if anyone is in that area, um, that's another thing that would be great. Jump on our forums and let us know, hey, I'm here. And, yeah, uh, there's quite a bit of people popping up in the St. Louis area that are either moving there or that are looking for Warhammer Fantasy action. Yeah. It just, in fact, today I, I connected uh, two people for, via private message on our forum. So definitely, you know, log on and look for people there. Yeah, that's been happening actually quite a bit. People have been signing on their forums saying, I'm from this area. Does anybody know anyone from this area? We're sort of like a match.com for people looking for Warhammer pickup games. It's sort of fantastic. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I, I like mean, they're it. not necessarily going out and dating, but you know what I'm saying. They're well, it, they're but it, in a sense, in. David, it kind of is because you're spending an intense three to four hours with this person, engaging in very you know cerebral one-on-one activity. So it, 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 it's <laughs> kind of a it's a social contract, it's a social commitment. There so. you go. Yeah, it's fantastic. So I'm kind of glad we're doing that. Mm. Um, but we're not liable for any you know stalking or otherwise that might occur. No, no, we're not. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> All right, we'll be back. Yoo-hoo, it's Sigvald the Magnificent here again, and you are listening to Garage Hammer. This week, I want to have my way with the pretty one. Hmm. And we are back. Where are we, Chris? We're right here. 
And we are on the air. Back. You know, just we are back. Yeah. <laughs> but the question: When will then be now? Soon. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if we're gonna play that game, might as well, yeah, might as well do it right. That was going to be one of my. I, I thought about being Major Philip A. Hole from, <laughs> but then everybody would have known. You're surrounded. <laughs> All right. So, uh, okay, we're back, and it's time for news and rumors. And news and rumors is brought to you by the Circle City Circuit. Circle City Circuit. And don't forget, uh, September 13th is the next uh, tournament for the circuit. It is the Nurgle's Car and Evil on September 13th. So, which is a Screw City primer, which is coming up in October. Yep, absolutely. So all sorts of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the thing that I thought of that I had uh, teased before we went to yeah. the commercial break, um, we are just about running out of Garage Hammer dice. And um, it's uh, basically, uh, with the show expenses and stuff, last time I just ordered up a 1000 and then slowly paid myself back. But that's not going to happen. This time. Um, But I still want to make an order. So here's what I'm going to do. I thought this would be a fair thing. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask people who want dice, who are willing to order dice, if you want to put in a pre-order. I won't charge. I won't send you a bill for them until we get enough pre-orders to order the dice. But here's what I'm going to do for people. If you order, I need, uh, if you want to order 20 dice, and the dice are a buck a piece. It would be 20 bucks plus shipping, which is about $3 in the U.S. So if you're in the U.S., for the $20 plus shipping, I will send you 30 dice when, when we get them in. So you'll be, you know, buy 20, get 10 free, mm. basically. Good so deal. Yeah, it's not a bad deal. Um, I will need 20 pre-orders to put in the whole order, though. So that's the thing. So if people I've, – I've gotten three or four emails from people looking to order dice, and a couple people said them and their clubmates want to order dice – if I can get, you know, and if you want to order more than 20, if you want to order 40, I'll ship you, you know, that's two orders of 20. I'll ship you 60, whatever. Oh, okay. Increments of 20, but get 10 free. Yeah. Buy 20, get 10 free. Um, I know it's kind of a lot, but I mean, dude, we roll a lot of dice. We we do. Yeah, you that's know? one unit's worth of shooting. <laughs> exactly. So basically what I'll do is for the, the so that the, the, in increments of 20, I need to get basically 400 order and able to be place a minimum order. So if I get the orders, you know, once I got 20 people who contact me, you can either uh, email me at david at garagehammer.net or uh, just contact me through our forums, garagehammer.net slash forum. And um, once I've got 20 orders, order. yeah, once I got 20 orders, I will, I will send everybody like a PayPal invoice or whatever. And once I get the money together, I'll place the order. So this way we'll have that and we'll have then we'll have the extras to sell when we need them, but this way it's all covered. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a dice Kickstarter, so I to mean, speak. I mean, yeah, basically. I mean, I, I just that's the only way I can do it right now. I mean, you know, I'm not crying poor. If nobody, if, if I don't get any orders, then I know nobody needs no, it makes them. Sense. Worried, Why but, should you have to float all the money? You know, it's, right. it's, it's, all, it's a lot for one person to... And, burden, and I'm so. just... And I figured, hey, if I give you an extra 50% extra dice... That right, should be a good enough. That should be a sweet enough deal, you know. So, having battled on about that, let's get on to some news and rumors. Yes, there's a lot happening in the world of Warhammer lately. It's about flipping time. It's been a couple of months. It has. Now, this I don't know about you, but this seemingly all this stuff, the gash and all the other stuff that they 
that we've seen has come out of seemingly nowhere yet again. Yeah. Or is that just me? Well, I mean, I saw some rumors a few weeks ago. You Anything know. in specific, though? Well, I mean, the same thing we heard was there. Remember, we said there's going to be a release and there's going to be some undead and then maybe some Nurgle. I mean, we talked about this last episode. Yeah. So it's about two, three weeks ago when we recorded but, but it. But a few models here or there. Nothing, certainly nothing like this. Oh, wow. No, no. I mean, now, granted, if you look at the, the, the pictures leaked for uh, what this week's coming up, White Dwarf, or maybe it's it's, it's either this week's or next week's White Dwarf. Um. It's the books and the cards and just the Nagash model. So all those other models we're seeing pictures of are probably the next few weeks right. releases. But wowie wow. I mean holy mackerel. There's <laughs> Well, so let's talk about the uh the do you want to talk about the model first? Sure. What uh, do you think? I I like I like what I'm seeing. I mean it's I mean I don't get what all the spines are coming out the back and the sides, but I'm assuming once you get a 360 view, it'll be a little easier to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of impressed at all, how many of these models seem to be they've they've got that that that's the ghost, the spirit, the really thin plastic, mm-hmm. you know, bunches of them holding everything up. I agree. Yeah, it's um, it's it's, a, it's a kind of an engineering marvel that they're able to sculpt it that way. Yeah. I mean that it all holds together on those really thin ethereal bits. The holding, spirits, yeah. yeah. I mean, it looks pretty cool. I mean, and it's it really is sort of head and shoulders above the old Nagash. Oh my god! Literally, which okay. the old Nagash was just a, like a, a ghoul-looking skeleton dude, right, on a twenty-five mil base. Yes, which actually it's it's kind of funny because if you see someone took a picture of their old the undead book, mm-hmm. which has Nagash on the cover, except he's not a skeleton in that one, but it's the same outfit. I mean, yeah. And I I'm I kind of <laughs> I know it's a terrible model, but I really like <laughs> the old Nagash model. It's so ugly that it's kind of cute. It's kind of like ET. <laughs> You know, where it's like, this, this is such a goofy model that you kind of got to love it. It's just like, oh, poor Nagash. You've got such a stupid looking model. How yeah, cute. Uh, but he thinks he's badass, though. That's the funny thing. <laughs> but then, you know, they unleash this new model on us. It's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, if you read now, if you read the Nagash trilogy, you know, once he kind of came back from the brink of of, of death there mm-hmm. uh, and he, he manages to. Uh, basically, if you read the story without too many spoilers, he's he got like shot in the head and stuff like that. He was pretty much on the verge of death, lying under the sand or on the sand in the desert. Mm. And a bunch of Skaven came by, and they were starving, and they were going to pick his corpse clean. Mm-hmm. And he reaches up and grabs him and attacks him in the warp stone. He gets a hold of the warp stone and feels and senses its power, and he eats the warp stone. Mm. And uh, just, you know, just like the Skaven do. And it, the the power helps to fuel his abilities again. And he's able to sort of get up and crawl away. And he basically finds a mountain that's been struck by a giant meteor of warp stone. And he starts mining it with uh, all of his undead minions. He, I mean, he goes mm-hmm. and takes over a whole barrel full of... So, I mean, it's really cool, but basically spends years eating warp stone... And, and uh, you know, the Skaven realized there's this huge warp stone thing, and they want it too, and he's fighting with them, and there's this wars going on. And eventually they call a truce where 
they strike a deal where they will bring him slaves, whether it's orcs they captured or any other race they capture or Skaven slaves. They bring him bodies that he can mine with, and he gives them mm-hmm. some of the warp stone. Uh, what they don't realize he's doing is he's killing them, swallowing their souls to build up his own power, and then reanimating the, the bodies to mine the warp stone. And then he's eating the warpstone too, which is why all of his flesh falls off, and he's a skeleton. Right, and it, it's also why he's so damn big now. <laughs> I mean, he mutates him, yes, right, to some extent. Yeah, and that's when the Skaven realize, oh crap, we made a huge mistake. <laughs> Everything he's doing is making him almost nigh on it, you know, right. invincible. Uh, yeah, and so more the, powerful. While yeah, so the model being that huge monster isn't far off of anything you would. It, it's. You know, you look, whoa, I see that big. The story, yeah, he's that big. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Makes sense. Hey, the model is quite striking. You know, before I, I saw him kind of on his feet. Yeah. But then when you see the picture of him with the swirling and he's kind of elevated and the swirling spirits around him, that's really when it, it really makes its full impression. Yeah, it's an impressive model. I mean, it, it better be. I mean, it's a buck oh five. You yeah. know? So I not mean, cheap for for one model. I mean, that's that's we're heading into new territory here, right? Yeah, I mean, I remember buying. You know, I mean, granted, I mean, we could all say this, but you know, heck, when I started, battalions didn't cost that much when I was I started in the hobby, but they also didn't look like that. I mean, it's quite yeah, it's, an, it's, it's, it's quite a feat. It is. It is. It really is. So I'm looking forward to reading all the material that comes with it. Uh, reading up on the lore of undeath that yes. apparently everyone has access to. Yeah, everyone in uh, now. It, that, I mean, it seems like this is going to be a campaign book to me. It's a. I mean, from what I've read, it's a, it's a two book set. Then it's like it's cost the same as the big red book. It's like eighty five bucks. Uh, two book set in the slipcase, fancy pants. Uh, the the collector's edition is about one hundred and fifty bucks, and that's got extra maps and pictures and stuff like that. Jeez. Um, but yeah, two book set, and it's it's a huge. I believe it's a big, like a campaign style type book. Makes sense because from what it says, it you know this is like an end times campaign. So makes I, sense because the the changes that I mean we don't know by the time our listeners hear this, we may have more information. But you know, new lore that everyone has access to, thousand point character. You know, what could this mean for the game in general? You know, it doesn't mean anything for the game in general for the tournament scene, etc. I know there's some apprehension in terms of what effects. This yeah. release is going to have. Well, every time something like this comes up, you wor- the you know the tournament scene starts to worry. But I really think this is a this is a campaign thing, like separate from the basic rules. I think it's almost like you know, like apocalypse for you know for forty k. Not not just not just necessarily in size that you're just playing a huge game, mm-hmm. but I mean the but rumors kind of its own subset. The rumors said something like you can have fifty percent. In in lords or something like that, or fifty percent, so that you can, you know, put Nagash into a smaller game. So they're changing percentages around in, when right. you play it that way. There are scenarios because one of them, I mean, he's trying to kill Setra because he wants to. I mean, he hates the Tomb Kings. He's you know, mm-hmm. so part of that is him against Setra. Hmm. So you know, and look, I mean, the other models. He's got Manfred, Neferata, Archon, all have new. Sculpts Archon on that flying chariot thing. Yeah, what did you think of all those? Dude, they all look pretty sharp to me. You know, I mean, everyone knows I'm a fanboy, but from the picture so far, I mean, those are some highly detailed. 
Yeah, highly so, detailed, very dynamic. Uh, the, I'm looking at the one. I think it's Manfred on like what looks like some kind of undead steed, where it's got glowing skulls as its uh, innards. That, yeah, that one I can't figure out because it looks almost like at first I thought it was just bone painted black, mm-hmm. but it almost looks like metal caging, like right, like armor. Yeah, like they've trapped an exoskeleton. Yeah, yeah, like it's some sort of. I mean, you know, yeah, like they they built this metal cage around this uh, almost like the Chaos Dwarf stuff. Almost. It almost you know, looks like uh, like writhing like damned souls like trapped inside this metal cage. Sure. But I'm just saying that whole idea of catch, capturing some some sort of a demon or some sort of spirit mm-hmm. energy inside a thing. So th- that, that mount uh, is the one I'm not 100% certain on because in the picture I can't really tell what I'm looking at. Like mm-hmm. it's, you know... Um, Dude, they've all got to be pretty expensive too. They're all big. I mean, Nagash is coming into a C note. I'm wondering what the other ones are going to be. Uh, the one thing I know for certain is I will not be buying all of these on the day they come out. I just this is <laughs> it's too much. Yeah, yeah that's I a mean, lot. I've, I've, unless unless some of these are are represented by two of you know multiple pictures are from one kit. Well, still, but if I want all the kits, I got to buy multiples. You know, if I you know if Neferata yeah. and Manfred are the same kit. I still got to buy two of them. You know what I mean? Well, that's that's assuming that uh, you buy the campaign book, and uh, are these models only for that that campaign book? That's what I'm waiting to find out. If it's all just for the campaign book, I don't know how much of it I'll be able to purchase. Although mm-hmm. I really want that Nagash model. Yeah, that one's cool. Those those new spirit hosts are pretty hot. Yeah, or whatever they are, those are definitely spirit hosts, and I think. As much as I like the ones I did using the uh, models from the uh, Lord of the Rings line, mm-hmm. oh, I think I might be picking those up. Yeah, these are nice. The, the The best part of it is the spirit, like coming out of the skeleton. Yeah, yeah, so cool. So he's pulling. Yeah, the, the, it's the tortured spirit coming out of the dead body is really mm-hmm. cool. Now I gotta. I love my son because most of the time he doesn't ever say anything nice about my models, but he's like, you know what? I like <laughs> yours better. And I'm like, what? He's like. Yours, you know the those the army of the dead from Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings. They, they he goes, those look like warrior ghosts. These just look like ghosts. Yours look more like something on a battlefield. He's like, I like yours better. I wouldn't use the other ones. I'm like, oh, I'm really flattered. Thank you very much. I'm still buying them. <laughs> right. <laughs> nice. Well, he has a point, but it's subjective. But these are, I mean, these are very dynamic and very striking. And once again, it's got that. I mean, I just love that real fragile look. It was when I got the Mortis engine, and you had those three Banshee spirits like spinning around the top of it. Mm-hmm. I was sort of sold on that. Really, it just it looks so cool and so. I mean, everything is so thin on it where it connects to the base that it does. It's got that floating, really yeah, wispy kind of yeah. It doesn't look like it's connected. Yeah, it's it's really well done. I, every release that the GW has done, they seem to outdo themselves from a model standpoint, which is good to see. Yeah. Which is probably then also in keeping with the price, but yeah. you know, it comes hand in hand. So yeah, because yeah, I'm just I'm I'm kind of blown away. Like I said, I need to see how much all of these things cost. Those weird what I don't even know what those other things are. Those big those fighty monster looking. They look like uh, monstrous infantry on what looked to be chariot bases, maybe, or, or 50 by 75 size bases. Yeah. They look pretty cool, those winged sort of draconian-looking yeah. things. And they almost look like they're floating over the ground, too, like whatever's holding yeah. them in the back. Like, the feet don't touch the base. I'm like, okay, what is this? This is – I'm not even certain what to make of that. It's very intriguing, though. It's fun, it's fun to look at. It's fun to speculate. Yeah. You know? So – 
I mean, it depends on if it's just for that campaign and how much I'll be able to play will determine how many of those models I will buy. It'd be a shame if it were if these were only for the campaign and and I mean we play our fair share but not not as much as you know we would like you just don't see a lot of campaign games happening right. it'd be a shame if these kind of fell by the wayside because of that yeah I mean yeah I'm kind of hoping that you can sort of do anything but it depends on you know those are some of the other rumors that I'm hearing and that's the stuff that you know because they're saying it's these end times and no matter how this campaign plays out see I mean. You know, you're going to play the campaign. Either Nagash is going to what trash the entire Warhammer world, or they're right. going to stop him, or he's going to die. Yeah, but it, you know, could this? I mean, and the funny thing is, it seems like they've been planning this for a while because all the fluff in in the army books has. I mean, a lot. I mean, the high elf, vampire mm-hmm. counts, and dwarf book have all mentioned that thing with Manfred trying to get. Mm-hmm that princess over there to raise Nagash, and apparently it's Manfred who does it, according to what I'm reading in the little rumor bits. And when I was on mm-hmm. things like uh, what uh, VampireCounts.net and stuff like that, okay. uh, the rumors I've been reading, is, as far as the story goes, Manfred manages to resurrect Nagash, and then Nagash pulls together his his undead, you know, uh, Archon and Nefrata, and, I mean, he's trying to unify the the world against this at the same time we're going to have demons uh, yeah demons attacking both the dark elves and the high elves uh one of the rumors i read that sounds craziest is the empire actually allying with the undead to to stop the demons okay so, I, yeah i guess if your if, backup is against it you'll do anything right uh but so if you get this sort of you know world changing battles what does that bode for the next edition of the game? Or is it, you the know, allies and so forth? Yeah, are they going? Is that is this ally stuff? Are they going? Is it going to change the next edition of the game? Are they actually going to play? Are they basically? Are they going to write this campaign into the timeline? They've been mm-hmm. building up to it, um, you know. Because part, yeah, part of what else I read was that uh, it is this. It's the storm of chaos. Archaon is coming in. Kislev is completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. In this version of it, um, but then Archeon is sort of sidetracked by Nagash, who's you know trying. To, so all of these things are, are sort of mixed in. They're sort of retelling that Storm of Chaos. And if they do that, will the next edition move it to this post Storm of Chaos world where a lot of things are destroyed? I mean, I've mm-hmm. heard rumors of them turning fantasy into a skirmish game after this. That there's so few people left that it's a smaller game. Which honestly will really piss huh. me off because I've got about three hundred, you know. Right. Well, I don't know if they'll make the game. On they'll a small rewrite game. the game to be that. Maybe it'll right. be an option. You can play smaller slash skirmish size games, True. which I would be okay with. I mean, if it's anything like um, Mordheim, like that smaller scale, I'd be totally fine with that. But I'd love to keep the option for the bigger size battles as if well. If it's an option, because I have too many yeah. damn models in each army. To only be able to play a twenty model game, you know what I'm saying? I if I want to play a twenty model game, I'll pull out my trolls for a war machine. You really? Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. But, but you know. What, but you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's. No, like, I, 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 I like, love the option. I, don't I know like if you've ever played more battles. time. Yeah. You only have five guys, you know, running around, but it's a right. lot of fun. It's the same mechanic. It's the same universe. Oh sure, but I'm. I don't. I don't want that to be my only option. You know what I'm no, saying? No, no, no. Not not your only. Right. I agree. Not your only, but just one of many. Oh sure. Um, the other thing this might lead to is if they're you know. 
you hear rumors that you know Nagash is trying to wipe out Setra and all the Tomb Kings. So people are like, what's going to happen to my Tomb Kings army? Is it still going to be around? Um, so, well, if know, anything, I would think that uh, that's a possibility for improvement. <laughs> right. Well, I actually, you know, there's there's people. I mean, there's. I mean, nobody knows. That's kind of what's so cool about this thing coming out. I've heard rumors that this is going to lead to going back to the unbroken, like you know, where they talk about allies. Mm-hmm. With uh, there is no more Bretonians. It's part. They're part of the empire. There is no more Tomb Kings in VC. It's back to undead uh, beasts, warriors, and demons. Will all go back to one all chaos. Yeah, which would allow you know GW to keep the model ranges and keep stuff, but we'll go condensing down the books and the things they need to produce for everything. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? And, and and once again, it could just be a campaign, and then they say, "Here, here's this campaign with this cool stuff, and you could play this, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the game." Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know, you don't know, but I'm well, all, all we can do is you know buckle up and enjoy the ride. So I'm looking forward to what they do with it. <laughs> they I sure they're got off to a great start. Exactly, they sure got us talking about it. They got a lot mm-hmm. of people talking about it. So, um. I'm super excited, and then it seems like it, it's uh, next week's uh, Warhammer Visions is supposed to be uh, is supposed to be uh, Nagash, which okay. normally Warhammer Visions has been since it's come out has been, and that'll, that'll be on the thirtieth because it's the last Saturday of the month. So the Saturday after this releases, that comes out, and um, it's been always. Showing you the models that came out up to that Previous. point, yeah, for the month. Yeah. Now it'll be showing you the stuff that's coming out next month, and I really hope they keep it that way. I do too. You know, because here, this is what's coming up next month. I mean, granted, then you got a big picture catalog, but but still, it's 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 this is the way forward. This is what's going to be coming up versus this is stuff you've already seen. Exactly. My, I mean, my subscription goes through January, and I'd, I mean, I would be much more excited to flip through that and see the models that are coming out and then be excited for the White Dwarfs. Okay, I, I want to see what this model is. I want to see what its rules are. I want to see what they right. say about it. You know, so hope if they make that switch, I think it'll make the World Warhammer, Warhammer Visions a much more useful book. I mean, I already enjoy looking through it just for the really well-painted models and... Um, mm-hmm. Heck, last month's with the Space Wolves, tons and tons and tons of the, you know, the stuff from, um, you know, the Games Day, you know, and the and the Golden Demon entries mm-hmm. and all that okay. stuff. Oh, a lot, of, a lot of good stuff then. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff. The magazine is actually, in my opinion, getting better. Um, but moving to what's coming as opposed to what just came out, I think, is going to be the big factor. If they stay with that, I'll be really pleased with the magazine then. Hmm. So, exciting times! I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with everything. Absolutely, I mean, there's nothing I like more than than change for the better. Yeah, but um, I mean, that's about it. But heck, that's a lot of news. And that is a lot of news. There was um, one last thing that I saw on the Bell of Lost Souls that I retweeted earlier today. I don't know if you saw that. I uh, probably not. Let me see if I can find it. They talk about upcoming releases. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Th- look for three. This is all, you know, Bell of Us Souls. Let's take it with a grain of salt. Look for three weeks of Nagash releases taking us into early September. And then it's the Dark Elves. 
The master plan is for GW to have fully phased out all softcover army books slash codices by summer of 2015. So that leaves the following books for them to crank out in the next nine months. Dark Eldar, Blood Angels, Necrons, Bretonia, Skaven, Beastmen. And then the Sororitas is kind of up in there as well. I don't know if they have their own book currently. but Sisters of Battle. Would, yeah, it would be nice for them to get a, get a decent book too. Yeah. So as far as fantasy, Bretonian, Skaven, and Beastmen looks like it's on, on the radar. There's more talk of that. So, Well, by next summer, I mean, still, that's nine months. That's up, almost a year away. Up, or up to a year away. Yeah. So it doesn't. So I, all the rumors of of ninth edition coming out this summer, I don't don't seem to be flying at this point. Uh yeah. Looks like that's pretty much gone the, by the wayside, which yeah. I'm okay with. But again, with GW, you never know. Next week, yeah. at this time, we could be talking about ninth edition. Well, I mean, they seem to put out the new editions in the summer. The new editions of the game. At least that's how it seemed the last couple of editions, you know. So um, I'm kind of hoping or thinking possibly, you know, next summer. Give me give me a little more time with this edition because I do love it. And then we'll see what happens next summer. Although it's kind of odd that like by that time you you have all the books be current to hardback, and then boom, it's another book. It's another edition. Uh, that's what that's what every game does, though. You know. Yeah. No. I mean, once they do that, then they have no books to produce. What else are they going to do? They've got to put out something. I mean, that's how they keep in business. Right. So you, you you adjust the rules. You make things, you know, try to try to spice up the game, keep it fresh, and keep the money flowing. It's, yep. Yep. it's how it's got to work. Hey, it's better than getting a new edition after just about 23 months. That's all I got to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so... Um, you know what? One last bit of news, and then uh, we'll hit a break. Um, Ryan Nickel asked me to talk about this. Um, for those of you who are even remotely interested in the uh, the U- U.S. Masters, uh, Ryan Nickel has graciously accepted to take over as the uh, lead Midwest, you know, the representative for the Midwest mm-hmm. in all of the you know discussions and voting and stuff. I'm still Excellent. I'm still backup, <laughs> but okay. Ryan Nickel took over. Um, he ran into a bit of a uh, conundrum about our, you know, every region has its own way of qualifying. And the way the Midwest sort of set it up was uh, the top, you know, nobody really in the Midwest liked the idea of going with rankings because it can lead to, um, well, Jack Holery at, mm. at times. So nobody seemed to like the idea when we were first doing this of going with rankings. So we picked the, f- the five, you know, sort of five of the bigger Midwest tournaments Mm-hmm. And the top two Midwest players in each tournament would get an invitation. Okay. So let's say you know numbers one and two at bits. Let's say we're both from the Midwest, so they get invitations. And if somebody says no or they can't, then we go to the next person in line. Makes sense. Okay. Um, and this way, also like at Adepticon, obviously it's you know with people coming from all over the country, it's the top two Midwest people who place. Right. Um. So Ryan was going through the things, and like last year, we had like Mikey Gerald qualified in more than one tournament, mm-hmm. but obviously you can only qualify once. Um, so what that led to is Ryan just uh, making this change, and I, we you know, we have a lot of listeners from the Midwest, so he asked me to sort of explain it really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, if you qualify in more than one tournament, so if you qualify twice or even say three times, um, which tournament you're actually going to qualify as? is sort of undetermined. It will float. 
Uh, basically, what Ryan said is, well, if you win, if you qualify in two tournaments, whichever tournament will get the two highest placings, that's that will determine which one you you count as. Okay. So basically, if if I win two tournaments, now I'm just using me because I'm just I'm not saying I would win two tournaments, but let's say I came in first in two different tournaments, okay? And um, so if I if if you keep me in the first tournament, we'd have first and second place going here, and then first and fifth going in the or second and and fifth going in the other tournament. But if we flipped it around and I qualified in the other tournament, we'd have first and second and first and third. See what I'm saying? If 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 someone can go who's of a higher placing, mm-hmm. you know. So basically, it, that you're going to float to the tournament, you're going to qualify for the tournament that would make the highest overall ranked people get to go. Does that make sense? Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you're, you, it's your best tournament showing that's taken into consideration, right? And you, you know, so it's it's not just it's not just you. It's also how high can the people, the other person in those, the other people in those tournaments you qualify in, can they go? I see. So, and Ryan, I mean, he's. I got it, and it took a while to look it over and make and see how it would work. But basically, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's Ryan's job to see who can go and and who who can make it. Mm-hmm. And once once that's all figured, then he'll know where to place the people. But he just didn't want anyone coming to him saying, "Well, I thought he qualified in this one, and now he's in that one." It's mm-hmm. whichever's going to get the highest ranked players because that's what's the most fair. Okay, so, makes sense. So with the, with the end result of building the strongest team, absolutely possible. Okay, absolutely. And um, so, I mean, that's kind of what we're doing for this year. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. And I, I got to say this, you know, uh, we were worried. We didn't know who would even want to pick up um, as the head guy. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, Kevin Bruins, he's going back to school. He doesn't have time to do it because of school. Sure. Um, but he did a bang-up job. And we're like, ugh, because... Part of the rule, you know, part of it was if nobody picked it up, I'd have to do it, and I. <laughs> you didn't want to do it. Huh? I, no, I don't want to be the. T- I mean, I'm I'm happy to be the helper, but I didn't want to be the guy who was in the front lines because I just don't have the time or the energy. And so, you know, he's he's done a bang up job, and he's really looking at everything and trying to make sure mm-hmm. that we we're sending not only the best team but the most fair way to. Sure. To choose people, so I'm, no, it's a I'm, it's a big undertaking, and I think yeah. I think Ryan is certainly up to the task. Um, oh yeah, you know he's 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 part of the community. He's ingrained in the community. A lot of people know him, and I think uh, yeah, it's uh, we should expect uh, some good things in the near future. Absolutely. All right, you know what? Uh, break time, and then we're going to come back with the toolbox, which is brought to you by Chaos That's right, folks. Chaos Orc Superstore, your one-stop shop for all your hobby gaming needs. They've not only got current and classic GW releases, Chess X Dice, and Vallejo Paints, but now they're also carrying Mantic, Infinity, Flames of War, Privateer Press, Soda Pop, Dark Age, and other assorted board and miniature-based games. They usually ship within 24 hours, and the model in the picture is the model they ship to you, because at Chaos Orc Superstore, what you see is what you get. Chaos Superstore. 
KSR Superstore. Welcome back to the garage. We're talking some toolbox brought to you by So, uh, reading. Hey, did you start the new book? I uh, not yet. I, I haven't started Calgary quite yet, but uh, you know, I'm happy to report that I did finally finish Shadow King. Yes, you did. And man, I tweeted this as well. This you is, hated it. That was I one know. of the hardest things that I, I, I've ever had to do. <laughs> well, geez. You know, God bless you then, because if that's not one of the hardest things you've ever had to do, life's been pretty <laughs> I'm good. I'm living a charm life. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but that was it was a hard book, man. It was tough to get through. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to nit, nitpick it too much because I feel like we've... we've yeah, well, we talked about it death. last episode, actually. You, mm. I think you finished it last episode and we discussed how how much you were... Unhappy with it, so. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna take a break. Okay, sounds good. In terms of the reading, how about yourself? It's gonna be good. Uh, I got back to working on Legion because I got to get it done for, for um, after Olinor. Mm -hmm. I actually, you know, I plan on reading like five books this summer, and that was a total bust. Never happened. It wasn't even close. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem was I kept going back to read Legion, and it's it's so funny. Like the first half of chapter one, it was killing me. And it's Dan Abnett. I like Dan Abnett. It was killing me. I could mm-hmm. not get past the first. Like I kept, I'd start and then I'd be like, ugh, eh, or I'd fall asleep. <laughs> and then I put it down and then I pick it up and I'd be like, all right, I don't even remember any of this description. I'm going to oh, go back and start again. again. And I kept getting through the first like 15 pages and throwing the book aside. And I finally got to the end of chapter one. I just kind of forced myself to move through. And then I and then it was like by the end, of, the first time I read it, like I hadn't read any of this stuff yet. And I was just so excited for the next book. That even though the beginning was like me 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 me, like I just kept going because I wanted to keep going. Mm. Now going back and doing it a second time, I hit that. But I've gotten I've gotten like over the hump, and now it's like ooh, this is, I remember why this was good. Now I'm reading it, so okay, I'm plowing through, and uh, I'm almost done with Monster Hunter International, or at least that I'm waiting. Well, when this comes out, I'll be one day away from my next Audible credit. And uh, then I'll get the last book because I've been doing them all on uh, on uh, audio book. Uh, seriously, guys, Larry Correa, C O R R E I A, uh, Monster Hunter International and the Grim Noir Chronicles, fantastic stuff. If you like some pretty cool, you know, sci-fi, urban fantasy slash horror stuff, um, it's really good. Like. He's one of my new favorite authors. He really is. Hmm. And uh, so I would I would recommend that if you got an Audible credit burning a hole in your pocket, Monster Hunter International or uh, Hard Magic. Uh, Hard Magic is the first of the uh, Grimnoir trilogy. And Monster Hunter International is a, an ongoing series right now. Uh, and book five just came out recently. And that's the one I'm... I got six days for my Audible credit to kick in, and I just—it's it's, can't come soon enough, huh? I, I I almost bought another credit and said forget it, and just bought the credit just so because I, I don't want to wait another week. Hmm. But uh, it's—I highly recommend them. So, and that's cool. it for my reading as well. 
because uh, school starting and I'm teaching a new class that I haven't taught before. A sophomore literature makeup. So all the people who failed 10th grade lit, I'll be uh, teaching two classes of that. Oh, that sounds fun. Yes. And so I'm like, oh, I've never taught this before. And so I got some people who taught it. And they're like, here, we'll give you the stuff that you need. And, oh, here's the books you should teach. And we'll be starting this one right off the bat. And I'm like, oh, now I got to read that. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, I'm not even, you know, I have no desire to read that. But I don't have a choice. That's one so. thing. It's one thing when you have to read it for, for school. or Exactly. Well, there's so many torturous. things I'd like to teach, but it's one of those things where you have to have a, a common curriculum. And they're like, well, we're all going to teach this. And that's right. what we like to teach. So you're teaching it, too. And I'm like, I'd rather teach something fun. But it's, you know, whatever. Right. Right. Job's a job. You. So hobbying. What have you done, Chris? I'm still working, plugging away on my archers. So we're plugging away in your archers. Are you going to string- away in my archers? Are yeah. you going to string the bows? Oh, for sure. That's usually the, the very last thing that I do, though. Okay, I'm just, I'm just. I, they look so nice when they're when they're strung. They really do. It's it's one of those things that seems like a huge hunk and pain in the behind. It's really not. It's it's once you get your process down, um, it, it's it's easy. But the key to that to making it look good is to make sure those those strings are taut. Okay. I, I see. Sometimes I see pictures or, or models in person where someone has the string, but it's it's loose. It just doesn't look right. Oh yeah, because a bowstring can't be loose. I mean, if it's yeah. loose, there's something wrong with the bow, right? Totally, totally. So when I see that, of course, I, they're I just elvish like, ah. bows. It's not like they're of dwarf and make, so they might not be of the highest quality. Watch but. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, working on that. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to getting these archers done, and I'd like to move on to a unit of reavers just to mix things up and you know do some horses and stuff. Cool. Very cool. Is, so is that that's all you've been just kind of been plugging away? Yeah, just just plugging away. Yeah, that's pretty much it. All righty. So I guess we're on to me. Yeah. Yeah. I went to Gen Con, so I had I got nothing done. Um, <laughs> my big uh, here here's my big hobby uh, hobby. Uh, my hobby has moved forward. Um, I got my like thirty some odd movement trays from Shogun Miniatures. Thirty. Wow. So every possible configuration you can think of you know what i decided i wanted the metal movement trays and they've got the little flat you know the, the curved up edges you know mm-hmm. and you know, I, my you know my father-in-law works and he, he works and he, he's a handyman so he had a ton of sheet metal and he gave me the tin snips mm-hmm. and you know i made my own metal movement trays mm-hmm. um, but i don't have the stuff to to smooth out the edges and stuff to make right. it yeah. it was such a i mean i built i think Four or five movement trays, and it was, it was. That's it, hard work. I mean, cutting that metal. That's, I had I, tin snips and everything, but the point is, then getting the little. I would go into Plastruct and buying the little plastic, you know, half rods to put on the edges to make the edges of the movement trays and stuff like that, because I couldn't bend it up, you know, nice and even. Mm-hmm. Dude, that's, okay, that's a lot of components going into the those construction. I went and here's what I did. I went on their website. I looked at them. People had had recommended it's Shogun Miniatures, by the way, folks. So I decided, okay, I got a five wide by four deep. I got four of those. I got five wide. No, I think I only. I think went five wide by five deep. I got four of those. Six deep. I got four of those. Seven deep. I got four of those. Eight deep. I got four of those. I got about four of the horde um, that would hold forty, mm-hmm. and then I got like two hordes of fifty, and then I got two each of um, for cav bases. 
a cav trays. I got two mm-hmm. each of a five cav unit, a ten cav unit, and a fifteen cav unit. So, are you going to like multi-purpose these trays for both for multiple armies, or are they dedicated to just one army? Uh, haven't hundred percent decided yet. Um, I can do just generic, you know, trays mm-hmm. so they can be multi-purposed. Um, it really, I'm trying to decide what I want to do with the edging. Cause if I just want to sort of paint it up and, and make it black and put a little gravel and, and say, I could do it, use it for everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I also was looking at Plastruct and if I get the half round bottoms and then the quarter round for the top, I could basically make a three quarter, like a three quarter circle and put mm-hmm. it right up against the edge of the movement tray. And, uh. I actually looked at it, and if I do it right, I could actually magnetize the bottom part of the three-quarter round, uh, you know, like a three-quarter circle on a rod. Mm-hmm. I could magnetize the actual plastic on the rod so I could snap it onto the movement tray. And mm. if I wanted to make a different basing, like say I wanted it for my VC as opposed to the dwarfs, I could just make more of the rods and just snap them on for any sort of configuration I wanted. Or I may just keep the flat edges up and do it simple. I, you know, I, I'm not certain yet. The world is your oyster. Like the, the, point. the point is I now have metal movement trays. So all these stupid magnetized models that I've been magnetizing the heck out of, now I have trays for them. Okay. And no, no matter, you know, I'm constantly changing up my list and then I change my list and then I don't have a, a metal tray. Because it's, I don't have the right size. Now I got enough. No matter what I want to do, I got it. You got it. Okay. That's that's a, a large reason why I've gone with the, the – I, I just make my own out of the balsa wood. Right. They're easier to – much easier to construct than the – you know, no, there's no tin snipping or anything. But right. it does get kind of tiresome, you know, like, oh, I have to buy – I have to build four more of these things. Well, here's the thing. I, I tweeted a picture of it. I think I got something like 34, 35 trays. Mm-hmm. All the metal trays that I wanted uh, before shipping, it was about a hundred and two dollars. Hmm, that's not too bad for that many. Yeah, for I mean, it wound up being I don't remember. Like I said, I don't have the list in front of me, but I think it wound up costing me just under three bucks a tray. And for some of the, I mean, the bigger trays get more expensive than the smaller trays. And I bought a lot of trays. Hmm. I mean, it was close to forty. It was over thirty. I don't remember the exact number, but it was. Somewhere between 30 and 40, and I think it was on the higher end of 30, if I remember correctly. Okay. I mean, I just kind of went hog wild. I'm just like, I need this stuff. <laughs> so, and I figured I'd just do it all in one big order because then they got to ship it. And, it right. and, dude, they were fast. I mean, they said it might take about two weeks before they could even ship it, and it was at my house in less than two weeks. Nice. You know? So all, you see your, all, all your models, most of your models are have magnets in them currently. The VC right? stuff does. The dwarf stuff, obviously, I'm still making all those bases, but they will have magnets in them too. So then the, the beauty of those metal trays is you can then, after you magnetize your figs to them, you can magnetize the trays to your display board. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very nice. Yeah. So I'm 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 super excited. So, But uh, that's basically all I've been able to do because, like I said, I was away at Gen Con and then school started this week and... You know, we only recorded like 10 days ago or 12 days ago. So that's cool. about it. So you got any other? Other. Uh, why well, I played in the local team challenge. I don't know if you want to talk about that now or later. But we could talk about it now. What would you do? Uh, there are three clubs here uh, that played in a uh, kind of a, 
uh, a club challenge. So it was okay. IWFB, um, Twisted Troop, which Ryan is a part of, as well as Jake and a couple of other guys. Right. Friday Night Dice, which composes of a number of guys. Some of the guys that help run Adepticon are part of Friday Night Dice. Okay. And uh, Holy Hammers, who's Steve Herner and his crew. All right. Are part of. So, and they were looking for some people, some mercs to, to fill in some spots due to some last minute drops. So I, uh, you know, f- fought for the uh, IWFB banner this time around. I did, you know, I, I took off my NW2 colors just for that one time. Hey, you know what? Honestly, they've been trying to put it together and we're, you know, Basically, I've had a lot of trouble of and me and Harrison have had a lot of trouble finding a time where we can go. So, mm. I mean, somebody might as well go play for a team tournament. So, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was interesting the the way that they did the matchups. There are four four teams. They did the matchups the same way that the ETC did. So they created a card. Each card had four, or each team had four cards. Each person had their own card. Okay. So. In this case, uh, Chris Walker and I, who's he's the IWFB captain, we looked at the cards and decided who, which person we wanted to put forth first. Okay. And the, the team that we're matched up with did the same thing. We put our, our cards down, face down and flipped them at the, at the same time. But those two people were not matched up with each other. They're kind of um, uh, diagonal from each other. Okay. So we see the person they're putting forth, and then we can choose from the leftover three cards that we have who we want to play that person. And then they do the same thing. Okay. So that's that's uh, two matchups worth of people paired off right there, and then we do it again. Okay. And then you have your four matchups. Oh, okay. So it's a little strange in that you don't get full control. Your team doesn't have full control over who plays who. You kind of get seventy-five percent control over half. <laughs> you put someone forward. That basically they get to put anyone they want on their team against it, pretty much, except, except for the guy for the that, they that they flipped, obviously. Correct. And the guy they flipped, though, then you get to from your remaining guys, you get to pick. Right. Right. Yeah, and then you each have only two left, so you flip. Mm-hmm. Well, that actually, then once you flip each flip, then there's not going to be anything left. It's just going to be mm-hmm. my flip and your flip go against the non-flips, right? Because that's all that's yeah, left. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So you don't get the full control over you know who gets to play who, which I, it's probably my one suggestion would be to to have it where you can sort of pick and choose the matchups a little bit more. But, yeah, uh, because it seems like there's only one real pick then. You, pretty much, you yeah. only get one real pick because then they pick the other, and then the remaining ones you flip, and then those teams you, you are, just, are yeah, chosen. constrained by whatever is left over. So, did you guys have a strategy going in? Did you put in your guy who you felt okay? This is the guy. Well, we looked at the matchups. I mean, we knew what the other teams were playing mm-hmm. in terms of what army, right? And so we tried to talk about matchups. You know, of, you know, against Jake, we should put up this person. All that went out the window once we saw how the mechanics of the the, the, the matchups went. You just didn't have control over, you know, you want, you want to match up against player A, but then they didn't reveal player A yet. Right. So, yeah, and a, that's, so when you're sitting there, it's like you put up, what do you put up? Do you put up your best player first, the hardest, hopefully the hardest matchup for them to choose against, or do you throw your guy in who you think is going to have, I mean, you look at all the opponents list, you say, mm. all right, you know, Jimmy's going to have the most trouble against any of these. Let's throw him up there. So no matter what they give, you know, he, you know what I'm saying? It's like, ugh, I don't know. You know, the guy who who seems mm-hmm. the guy who has yeah, the do, most. Do you play reverse psychology, right. or you know what? Yeah. You know, Jimmy's going to have a tough matchup against at least three of these. So let's just throw him up there. So no matter what they pick, it's not. You know, it's it can't get any worse. Right. 
and yeah, then, exactly. then we'll pick our better one against him, and then we'll flip and hope, you know, for the best. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. weird. That's a really weird sort of setup. It, it was, it was, you know, it worked. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's. I'd never heard of one going that way before. I mean, but the, hey, it, it if it works, it works, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but it was, it was, it was fun though. So the, my first matchup was against um, uh, Twisted Troop against Dennis Gunya's Warriors. Okay. And uh, you and I were talking a little bit beforehand. I, I, I brought the High Elves, the, the cavalry boss. Okay. And uh, I was thinking, you know, Lore of Beasts or should I go with something else? And I eventually settled on Lore of Shadow. And then instead of for the four bolt throwers that I normally would have taken, I dropped those for the Flame Phoenix and a second Eagle. Oh, thinking, okay. You know, fast maneuverable army. The Flame Phoenix can fly over chaff or charge it to kill it instead of me having to shoot it. Uh, and it was a mistake, especially in light of my first matchup. Uh, I played Dennis before a couple of times. He's a good player. He plays his warriors. Um, he, this time he had two heroes flying around on discs, and so he's a very maneuverable army. Could've he could basically, used thrower. yeah, totally. I mean, it's totally what the bolt throwers are there for. But um, in the end, even though we both had very combat oriented lists. The only combats that we saw that anything saw was pretty much chaff on chaff because his two big night blocks had ensorcelled weapons. My big night block, my huge night block had the, the banner of the world dragon. So okay. he wasn't going to want to engage there. He did want to fight with his uh, infantry block, which I did not because they, they had halberds and there were Mark and Nurgle. So he's going to win that grind fest. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So and then I think he won that by a couple hundred points, but it was a good game. He played it. He definitely played it how he had to play it. Um, didn't let me see any combats that I wanted. So yeah, how's that feel? It's frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's no frustrating. kidding. But you know, it's it's the game. It's it's how they the game. If you want to win, that's how you have to play it. So. Oh, exactly. No, I know. It's just sometimes you get a taste of your own medicine. It makes the other guy go hee hee hee. Yeah, but I, I tell you, I do miss those four bolt throwers. Big time. It just goes to show you that I think a well-rounded list is going to be stronger than any than any list that leans on one phase. Did you take two single eagles? Uh, I did. Yes. Okay. So yeah. the double eagle thing didn't uh, didn't happen. Uh, it's, I I I would like to, but just having two individual ones just for deployment drops is nice. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, if I can, I'd like to squeeze in that, that double eagle again at some point. Frustrating. Yeah, those so. are annoying as I'll get out, man. <laughs> and I never thought I would have been so annoyed by, you know, just a double eagle, but it was just enough to make sure it killed mm-hmm. off every war machine every turn. Well, all those extra attacks and, yeah, and the, extra wounds certainly helps. Exactly. Uh, so that was game one. Game two was against uh, Joe Pecoraro's Lizardmen. And okay. this was a very interesting game um, because he was running kind of a skink cloud avoidance type list. Okay. Which, after I played at Adepticon, I've talked with Alex and thought a lot about how I'd play against such a list because it's a very different style of play. He, right. he, he talked about not engaging you in combat at all, but he kind of skirts around you and poisons you to death and magics you to death. And right. Squeaks out a win. Um, and Joe's a very good player. Every, every game we, that we've had has been a very airtight uh, experience. So this time what I did was deploy my knights singly 12 wide. You know, Silverhelm's next to them, Frost Phoenix next to them. So, so very wide, but but thin. Okay. And just just move everything forward as fast as I could and, and press him. So, to prevent him from uh, double fleeing 
pretty much. I see. Uh, but Joe did something that I that I didn't expect, and I think that he ultimately would not have done was he charged my night bus with one of his scar veterans. Uh, try, I think to snipe out my uh, level four because that's where he charged and ended up with. Okay. Um, but it was just a single character, so my choppy lord declared a challenge. He had no choice but to accept. Uh, we fought it out, and the the lord. I mean, those scar veterans are pretty tough. Right. Absolutely. But, um, with the strength seven sword that that my lord was was toting around, and the golden crown, he was able to absorb some of the damage and killed that scar veteran uh, after two turns of combat. Whoa. And then I was able to he broke. I ran him down and then and then overran into his lines and started to cascade and get into combats that he did not want. Um, so I was fortunate in that respect. So I guess the point is that you know the different style play against that skin cloud, you kinda have to stretch out and get into him. Because anything that he has combat wise, you know, it's not gonna it's not gonna do enough. It'll it'll bounce. Right. So I'd like to try that again, you know, maybe with the the big horde of savages. If I string them out forty wide, you know, one deep, yeah, see what I can do with that. That makes sense. Uh, so oh, there was a win there. Third game was against uh, John Ellis. He's with the Holy Hammers, and he was running uh, a high elf bus, except this time with Silver Helms, uh, pair of Frosties, and Lore of Life. Now on paper, Lore of Life for me is death because you just dwellers that that cav bus and just start picking off characters okay and that's how you know that's one good way to beat the, the cav list that i run okay and he did dweller me one time i was lucky enough to stop it and then after that he ended up charging my bus with his bus in the front reavers in the flank and Frostheart in the other flank and um luckily for me his banner of the world dragon was in his white lion unit Right, and because it was tied up, it couldn't get a good angle. It was left out of that combat and could not get in because of the the way our units were situated. Uh, you know, he had every his silver helms to my front, reavers and uh, frosty in my flanks. So there was no room, so I directed all my attacks into the silver helms, keeping those reavers alive. Because if the minute one or two of those reavers die, and there's a there's a window, he'll charge his white lines in there and start really chopping up my. Uh, my dragon princes. Oh, I see. Okay, I get what uh, you're saying. So was, I wanted to make sure direct attacks on the silver helms, and uh, you know the, the advantage there was his two his characters, BSB and Lord, had magic weapons, which of course bounced from the banner of the world dragon that I had. Right. So after the initial charge, which I weathered, then it was just a matter of time of chopping through silver helms, etc. With uh, with my guys, but it was a good game. It was very tight. Um, he wasn't expecting the uh, crown of command in that dragon prince bus, so I think that took him by surprise when I was able to hold on that re-rollable ten. Well, yeah, that helps absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to have it because if you don't, you know, you, don't, you have no combat res. You're just counting on damage alone, and if if your night bus is getting is getting charged, they're not going to do quite as much damage. Oh yeah, then you're then you're going to be in a world of hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a, a win for me, but a, a good game. Nonetheless, but yeah, it was a it was a fun time. IWFB, who I play for, we came in third. Friday Night Dice took it overall. Uh, Twisted Troop came in second, and the Holy Hammers came in fourth. Oh, there you go. But uh, it was uh, you know sixteen players, all well painted armies, and it was funny. We played at a store. They they support a lot of games, but not really fantasy. And okay. you know most of the people there were tournament regulars, so they brought their fully painted armies. That was a requirement. You had to bring a fully painted army. And uh, it's funny, some of the people that I overheard 
checking out the armies, we're like, oh, wow, these fantasy armies are always so well painted. You know, a little voice inside of me went, yay. (laughs) Go community. (laughs) Exactly. No kidding, huh? Yeah. Well, that's cool. You had some fun, more gaming than I got. I mean, like I said, I was at Gen Con. I did a whole lot of gaming. But nothing, oh, you did a ton of gaming. Nothing we're going to talk about here. In fact, uh, oh, but either right before or right after this one comes out, there's going to be two Gen Con episodes coming out for Garage Gamer. Nice. Um, one, uh, me and Heather talking about the our time at Gen Con, mm-hmm. uh, along with interviews with the guys from Wild West Exodus and from Battle Foam. Some cool stuff talking about that. And then I got, of course, I was talking with Ronnie from Mantic. Mm-hmm. And uh, they gave us some cool prize stuff for support for sponsors, you know, their sponsorship. Um, but I talked to Ronnie Renton. I talked to Chris, um, you know, one of their, you know, their public relations guys. Mm-hmm. And I talked to Heath, who is uh, their um, concept artist. Oh, their cool. Head, yeah. So, but I mean, between the three of them, I was like, wow, I've got over an hour of, I mean, probably an hour and a half of me just talking to them. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, you guys are sponsors, and the whole episode of Garage Gamer is only supposed to be an hour and a half mm. uh, tops. So we're going to do a separate thing with just those interviews with them. So they're going to get their cool. own thing. So tons of stuff to talk about, but none of it here. So <laughs> <laughs> that's about that. So I think that's the toolbox. That is the toolbox. So that's great. So hey, how did you? So what? What did you do overall at the tournament? You personally, you went two and one. Uh, I went two and one. I, I forget my my point total, um, but yeah, two and one, and we, our our team came in uh, third. Okay, so the two and one's respectable. Hey, better than uh, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, I always, you know, I play back all those games. If I did have those bolt throwers instead, you know how things would have turned out. It's funny because against Dennis's warriors, yeah, bolt throwers would be great, but against Joe's lizard skink cloud, that could just be free points for him. So maybe it's a wash. Yeah. Ugh. Well, what are you gonna do? You know, like no. I said. You know, a winning record is a winning record. Walking away with a winning record is respectable. Yeah, I'll take it. All right, so uh, let's take a break. We're going to come back with a little Garage 102. Okay. Unique Gifts and Games in Grays Lake, Illinois is the one-stop shop for all your gaming needs. They carry anything your favorite gamer may want. Board games, collectible card games, miniature-based games, and all your hobby gaming supplies are there, as well as books, charms, incense, crystals, and other unique gifts. UGG has it all. Come into the store and ask about their frequent buyers program, or check out their gaming and events calendars in-store or online. From Tuesday night War Machine and Thursday board game night to Friday night magic, there's always something going on at Unique Gifts and Games in Gray's Lake. Check them out on the web at uniquegg.com. We're back. Back to the show. We're back. Yeah, back to having some fun here with a little bit of Garage 102. Um, wow, we haven't, I, I had to go back and it took, we haven't done, 
you know, did, we did it's been a ba- while. Yeah, we did basically writing and picking your army list and stuff like that, and mm. uh, not much else. So um, mm. we're going to discuss a little bit about deployment today. Yes, um, probably my favorite part of the game. I don't know about you. Uh, it's 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 one of the more interesting parts of the game. This is this is where like the chess match kind of begins. Mm. Um. And that's why we wanted to talk about it. I mean, this probably won't be a really long segment because there's not, you know, every situation's different and we're obviously sure. not going to cover every situation. But deployment is important. And if we're going to do this Garage 102 type stuff, um, before we even get to the movement phase, you got to get your armies on the board. So, mm-hmm. Well, in your, your notes, uh, you, you you pose the, the question or you you. you highlight the phrase, you don't win the game in the deployment phase, but you can lose the game in that phase. Yes. Do you agree with that? Um, I think I have lost the game in that phase at times. So I, I think, I think, yeah, I think a really bad deployment can really, I mean, can mess you up. How many times have you played? I mean, even if it hasn't been a long time, if you're a really good player, you avoid these things. But, mm-hmm. you know, your your best unit is somewhere where basically he's put his whole army to where your best unit's never going to be able to get to him. Mm, yeah. Or, or um, you wind up running around a building or a piece of terrain because they've managed to put it in between. Yeah, they've managed to set something up where you you put your guys. Mm-hmm. You know the the way you have your deployment to get to his stuff. You've got to move and shift, and now there's a building in the way. And by the time you move all the way around it, they're just running around the other side. I mean, I actually remember one of my games at Bits. I would play it against Greg Marcotte, mm. and uh, he was trying to get that gut star. <laughs> <laughs> after my uh, after my 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 one uh, my main unit, mm-hmm. and we literally, I just I stood around with my stuff, picking up his chaff, and we ran around a building. It was like a Benny Hill episode. Yeah, we just circle around, just running around the building, just avoiding him being able to charge me because I knew if he charged me, I'd get stuck. And I managed to place it where I was. I placed well. I placed behind the building, forcing him and basically. Put that building between us, right? Well, you're you're not uh, fighting on his terms, right? Not as, at all in as, this case. As soon as yeah, and, but but where he placed, I man, I, you know, I was able to use that building mm. to my advantage and force him to choose a side. As soon as he chose a side, I went the other way, and we were literally just running in circles around. It was it was stupid, and it was probably quite quite annoying for him. But it was that, the well, only, that's you know <laughs> that that's an important part of of the game, and and. You know, being cognizant of of what the matchups are, what matchups you do want or don't want, and then deploying appropriately is is a massive, I think, key to being able to win in on a consistent manner. Yeah, and that's uh, and you know, so I, you know, what I just wrote out a couple of thoughts and questions I had. So I, why don't I just pose them to you, and then we can sort of you know talk about it. Okay. Um, do you ever practice or maybe map out your deployment? Like you're writing a list and ever map out? You know, this is how I'm going to. Mm-hmm. All the time. Do you? I do it all the time. Yeah. Either, it, you know, in, in Photoshop or Illustrator, you know, while I'm in between projects, uh, I'll, I'll do it. Or, like, physically on my table, I'll lay out the units and, and measure, you know, it's got to be out outside of six inches in case I panic and I've got to be within 12 inches. I'll do it all the time just to physically see how things will look. Okay, cool. So I don't feel so weird then. I don't go that far. I just sort of sketch it out on a piece of paper, and it's not mm-hmm. perfect, mm-hmm. but I at least get an idea. Okay, I know this is this big, and I know this is this big, mm-hmm. uh, especially with my VC when I was first sort of putting my lists together because you've got that bubble. 
right the 12 oh, yeah. inch bubble around your general i need to know where where things are going to sit where things are going to sit and how i'm going how i can place them out so i'll even go so far as to after i deploy i'll even like do a turn or two's worth of movement these will vanguard here these guys will march that way i don't maybe that's weird but i just to get comfortable with how my units and you know where they're situated in relation to each other and that's important because it's not just putting your army out and do you put them on the 12-inch line or do you pull them back. There's a whole lot involved with, yeah, exactly. These guys can vanguard. So if I put them here, what am I going to do with them? Uh, mm-hmm. What if he's got stuff there and I don't want to vanguard? Where am I going to move these things? Mm-hmm. And uh, making sure you have the room to do it. You know, maybe something's bad mm-hmm. and I really don't want this matchup and I want to run him to the other side. I'm going to run him behind my unit. Can I fit mm-hmm. him back there? Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm glad mm. you do that too. So I don't, <laughs> I don't feel so weird. Um, now, do you? Now, when you've got an idea for deployment in your head, is it set? I mean, are you playing? Uh, this is this is the deployment, or do you? Because I think there's two types of deployment. So, I mean, some people have it set in their head, and I'm laying mm-hmm. it out this way because this is my strategy, is how I'm playing. I don't mm-hmm. care what the guy puts on the other side of the board. Or sometimes. Yeah, I, I know some people don't plan at all, and they're very reactionary. You know, they're just they see what you put, and then they're putting something else. I, I think it depends on the scenario, it depends on the army, but in general, I would say I'm sort of seventy thirty, seventy percent. I have my list or my deployments in mind, and thirty percent of it is is reactive. That thirty percent is usually things like my manglers or. My fast cav, you know, they have very very specific units that they have to deploy across from, but everything else is is more or less the same. This is especially true with uh, my orc and goblin gun line. Okay, I have a plan. It's this is how it's going to work. So a lot of times, my first deployment will be the big horde of savages right in the middle, and then okay. I'll just scatter the war machines all around it. That's that's pretty much how it is, regardless of how my deploy my opponent is, deploys. That's how my deployment goes. All right, um, I'm kind of similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got three or four units that are going to set up in this fashion. And like I said, I'm now I'm talking about my VC. With my dwarfs, I'm still kind of getting a handle for it again because it's a little different. Mm-hmm. But even then, I've got you know a, a couple of war machines, and I've got an idea in my head. They're going to lay out you know, in this area mm. in general, um, or my big blocks are going to go in this way. I know who's going to be in the center. I know who's going to be flanking. And those, wherever I put them, they're going to be in that formation that's going to take up a chunk of my deployment. Same thing, like I said, with my VC. I'll usually start off with zombies, and then I'll kind of, you know, because they're not that great, so I can kind of put them out. Mm-hmm. And after that first one, I can kind of see where you're deploying, and I can either, because zombies are usually on the flank, so depending on how I put it out, I could put it out, and then after I see a p- couple of pieces go out, you know, if I haven't already decided if that's the left flank or the right flank, I can go mm-hmm. either way. But that block is going to be set. Then mm-hmm. things like spirit hosts, they can kind of go anywhere they're needed. You know, mm-hmm. they they can go random. The uh, the vargeists even, or the if I take a vargolf, um, like you said, that's that's the thirty. You know, that's the mm-hmm. they can go anywhere. Especially if you have an army that I think might have like scouts. Totally, yeah. 
because if I think you've got scouts, I'm going to have I'm going to literally measure one foot from the corner of the table and put a spirit host or something like that there. Yeah, block them out. So yeah, I've locked off the entire. So you're not going behind me or in a corner. You can you can scout. You can go where you want, but you're not putting them in my starting. You're not starting in my backfield. I'm not Although, having it. With with the VC, that's not so much a concern for you, is it? I mean, if scouts get in your backfield, who cares? It's not like they can really threaten much. You don't have any war machines or anything. Right, but I don't want you getting into my flanks or in my back, especially depending on where I put, like, what my build is. A lot of times, if I'm taking a level four, say, Necromancer, which I do mm-hmm. that sometimes, and then I've got a couple of level two hero vampires, as opposed to taking just the big choppy lord. Mm-hmm. Um, if I've got a necromancer, he's usually not in that front lines. He'll be in, oh, in a, a unit in the back, him. and I don't want your guys coming in the back and tying up my bunker, keeping him from moving, then keeping my rest of my army even oh, to stay I back see. to stay in the bubble. Yeah, so I, I don't, know. I don't. Yeah, I mean, you got you got to take all these things into consideration. You know, I don't. I, I suppose, but if uh, if you you know five scouts because scout scouting units are usually pretty small. Let's say five shadow warriors or five chameleons. If they're going to charge the flank of your uh, your bunker, they're they're probably going to get killed on the way in, right? Maybe that's, that's, that would be my thinking. So it's very interesting to hear your thought process about that. It never occurred to me. Maybe I should do. It. I should try it sometime. Just charge your your bunker's flank. <laughs> I don't. Well, plus, I mean, you know, usually it's either skeletons or zombies. They're not very good. I've got some static combat res, but I don't want to get stuck there. And plus, the I mean, it's not even – your five Shadow Warriors are not my concern. It's when I've got two units of five or seven or ten flipping skinks or those stupid uh, Skaven uh, guys who are – Oh, the gutter runners. Yeah, they're throwing the stupid yeah. poisoned double shots, and suddenly it's like they're all up on my side and they're whipping stuff apart, and I'm like, eh, no, 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 no. I don't ever want you starting in my backfield. I don't care what you have. I don't care what I have. I want you in front of me. Or I'm but, not, yeah, fair enough. I don't want to have to turn around, spin around. You know, a lot of my my plans, you know, involve me keeping in my formation and getting into your face. Mm-hmm. And I don't want guys in the back. I just don't. I you know, I don't need it. It's a hassle. I don't need. So I'm always. Hmm. On the on the lookout for that, it, I might have to I might have to just exercise that just to because uh, it sounds like it messes your <laughs> messes up with your world. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's you know, and that's why I've got though. That's why I've got a spirit yeah. host and a Vargolf in those in those corner positions mm. to to stop that. And if it does happen, then I got to throw them in there. But I'd rather be move. I'd rather be moving forward and engaging your mm. army, sure. especially because I don't have shooting. Yep. So I want to be moving forward, engaging your army, and I don't need anyone in slowing me down messing me up and and changing my plan you know right yeah it makes sense so you know what is fun um that high elf cavalry bus in terms of deployment is a lot of fun to deploy because you're throwing out chaff reavers eagles uh sort of in the center right you're not committing you're not giving away anything especially when you have a unit of um the ambushing archers or spearmen Right. And then they're, you know, they deploy their line because people usually will deploy everything like right on the sort of center or to to a flank, right up on the the main line to to march up and engage. Right. So the way I play that list is I'll, I'll deploy that cavalry bus way over on one extreme flank, and that's it. Everything else is super mobile, whether it's you know a flyer or whatever. Then uh, I'll, I'll charge in and hit that one block. 
and then the other person has to kind of bring their whole army around to bear all the while stuff is getting in the way or I'm shooting them. And that's a lot of fun because you, you really throw someone's battle line way off kilter, way off balance. That's a fun way to play. I've found. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and that's part of it too, is that whole, you know, some people want to have lots of extra drops. So mm-hmm. you're forcing, I mean, you do that to me. You used to do that to me a ton, especially mm-hmm. with, with all those little 10 man archer units. Mm-hmm. Here's an eagle. Here's an eagle. And I got three 10 man archer units. Right. So five drops later, I got half my army out. And I, still and I, haven't, got, I haven't given away anything. It's, it's not even you haven't given away anything. Is you keep them so you keep all them archers and stuff. You keep them out on the flanks. Mm-hmm. So you've got. The, I know you're going to do something in the middle, but I don't know exactly where. I can't be lining up a matchup. Mm. You're waiting to see where my my units are going, so you can decide that matchup. Now I'm not saying you need a 17 or 18 drop army because then you're getting so many small units. Then you're going to run into different issues and, mm-hmm. and different problems. Um. But especially, I, you know, I, I found for it for twenty four hundred, uh, like five or six expendable drops, I found to be like com- comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even your war machines, even though you got to drop them all at once, it's still mm, only one drop, but mm-hmm. it's another drop. And I mean, let's face it, there's only so many ways you're going to deploy your war machines, especially Correct. if you got like a four bolt thrower. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to space them out, you know. Like every eighteen inches, you know, got one in the corner, Pretty eighteen much, inches, yep. eighteen inches, or or you know, twenty inches, or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So it kind of spreads across the board. Mm-hmm. So that way, you're not getting a run. They're not running over into each one. Right. They're not panicking them. And that's another thing with your deployment, dude. Make sure that you're in your bubbles or outside of your bubbles. You don't want to necessarily mm-hmm. have all of your war machines within X amount of inches of each other. And then this one breaks, and then they either overrun right into the next one, or this one's destroyed, and suddenly the guy next to it fails his panic check and flees. Totally. And if that happens, doesn't that cause doesn't that cause a new panic bubble? That one flees. Well, if a war machine panics, uh, it, it just doesn't shoot. Um, oh, that's but, right. They don't but, flee. But you know, if you selectively shoot and kill a unit, then you know, then you can start to have those panic checks all over the place. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the Orc and Goblin gun line is very susceptible to that with all those cheap bolt throwers, which are great, but they're ultimately leadership six goblins. Right. Um, so, and, and if, you know, if Orcs panic through them, they're going to take a panic check. Um, so you have to be very careful. It's, you know, manglers, if you shoot up a mangler and it's too close, that will cause panic checks. So, yeah, you certainly have to be very cognizant of that as well. And again, that's that's why I physically practice you know, what goes where, because I, I found there's no better substitute than actually physically seeing the models in relation to each other. Yep. Yeah. And it's, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's a learn by experience sort of thing where you can place these things. Eventually, if you're running the similar list, you just get used to your deployment, mm. uh, which is nice. But um, if you're, if you're having garage games or you're playing in like a campaign where you can be changing up your lists every game, mm. um, then suddenly, yeah, you need to have some some sort of an idea ahead of time and some sort of practice just to make sure you're doing it the way you need to be doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like I said, I, I, with the VC, I don't worry about the panic tests because, well, I I don't panic. You, yeah, exactly. But then, but I've got a 12 inch bubble that is just so crucial in mm-hmm. everything. I mean, even the way the order when you get to the movement phase. You know, that deployment is going to determine the order that I can actually move in to make sure that 
everything stays in the bubble or or, or mm-hmm. it starts in the bubble. So when it moves, then I can move him, you know. Is that when you say it's the bubble is important? Is that for marching purposes? I forget. Do VC march within? Yes, you got to be within twelve inches of the general to march. Okay, but it's also for magic considerations as well. Although I guess those spells are twenty four or eighteen inches. Well, the Van Hells. I mean, the the raised dead is six, twelve, or eighteen. Oh, I see. Okay. So, and I mean, twelve is sort of the. It's kind of the sweet spot. Twelve inches Mm. is kind of the sweet spot, but then you do you have. You have your blocks, and then now if you're running a lot of cav, and you got you know you you put your general in your cav if you if you want. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. want to talk vampire tactics, but you know some some people you know with their with the cav buses and stuff might run it a little differently, where they mm-hmm. don't really care, and that you know that the other stuff is they're running a lot of fast chaff. Mm. But um, I'm a I love boots on the ground. I love an infantry army, and so yeah, the you bubble, do. You love your hordes. Yeah, and the and the bubble's important for me. You know. Um, but it's, it's really a matter of, I mean, it's down to the point now where when I'm playing in the tournament where I'm, I lay out that, that first unit of, of zombies and I don't want to put out my main unit and I don't want to necessarily mm-hmm. give it up, but I know exactly how many inches wide that unit is mm-hmm. and I know kind of where I want it. So there I am measuring from the one end of the zombie. I pull the tape measure. All right. The unit's 10 inches. So here's 12 inches. Now put the other unit of zombies there. So if I throw this right here in the middle... <laughs> I've got the room, you know. I've got four other units left, so I could place anything there. But if if if, if I'm putting the general's unit there, I've got just enough room for that one inch rule. So everything is where it needs to be. Right. But um, that's uh, yeah, yeah. That that makes sense. It, it, you know, again, uh, I the important part is the, those matchups, and I think a, a part of that is awareness of the game in general, you know, awareness of what you're opponent's army, what units they can take. And um, what do you think of this? If, if you go up to a table, usually if you go up to a table, you know you, who you're playing against. You see their army. They see yours. You kind of walk through, okay, this is a unit of archers with full command. Um, you kind of discuss the, the upgrades in general. Nothing magical, but just the general upgrades. Right. What do you think of the whole practice of if you go up to a table your opponent's army would be hidden under it, and they they've revealed nothing to you, and they kind of pull out one unit at a time as they deploy them. You know, I, there's nothing against the rules about it. Mm-hmm. It just it just it seems shady to me. Not not shady like they're cheating, but it's like most people come up and you've got your army and you got it on your display board or your tea tray or whatever it is. And you're either putting it on the side of the board or somewhere nearby. Um, you know, I get it if you've got a unit of miners and you don't necessarily want them to know, you know, mm-hmm. because that's part of your tactics and you mm-hmm. kind of have that off to the side. Or you've got your, you know, uh, it's closed list, so you've got a couple of, uh, you know, you got an assassin. Surprises, right. Fanatics or I, I get or keeping those out of the way because if you put them on the if, – if they're right out in front, then the whole point of the closed list is kind of ruined. Mm. You know, I have no beef with people. If it's a hidden unit or a unit that doesn't come on right away, I have no problem with them keeping this. But just sitting there and hiding it under the table so I have no idea what you have at all, mm-hmm. especially when I've walked up and just put my army down. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I guess part of that is, I mean, if I walked up and I'm carrying my army and they've already sort of had it under the table, mm-hmm. you know, I just, 
I'm so used to just coming up to a table at a tournament and putting my army down and not trying right. to hide it that, you know, unless I know coming up, hey, you know, if I'm walking up, dude, yeah, or I'm going to put on, dude, don't show me your army. I'm not showing you mine. If someone said that to you, then it's like, oh, okay, if that's how you want to play, I got no problem we're, if we're both playing it the same way. Mm-hmm. But the only time I've ever experienced, I, I said, I've never hidden. I've had someone do that to me. Oh, you have? Yeah. And, Where at? Adapticon? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Huh. I was playing against their army, and I was just like, oh, what do you got? And they're like, well, I'm, I'll be putting it out. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I kind of took mine and put it down oh, wow. to the side as well. So, but I'd so already it, had it sitting there on the table. So I was like, well, crap, so you know everything I've got. You've seen I your hand. Yeah, yeah and see, your... and that's that's my beef with it is unless th- there's no way to, plant, to, to warn your opponent about that. Mm-hmm. And unless you do, it, it just seems like you're trying to get – an advantage, almost like a gotcha type advantage. Exactly. I mean, and like I said, I don't have a problem with it if it's a unit that's supposed to be hidden. I'm not mm-hmm. supposed to know if you have an assassin or if you've got fanatics. Mm-hmm. You know, that's part of the risk I take. So if you've got that off to the side and and just kind of sitting down, I, I don't have a problem with that. And maybe that's just me. Maybe someone else would have a problem with that. And they'd want it all out there. I'm kind of curious as to what other people think. Mm-hmm. Um. But the whole point is, if I'm walking up and you've already got yours, you're already there and it's already stashed. That you know, there, there's no chance for that conversation beforehand. That hey, let's not show each other this stuff. It kind of it kind of sets a tone, doesn't it? Like it seems uh, gamey. Uh, like you really need to hide certainly. it. And if you're going to be gamey right from the deployment phase, it's it sets a tone. So usually, when I go up to a table, part of that social interaction, especially if it's someone you don't know. Um, you know, you talk about uh, what units you have, and, mm-hmm. and it's part of the whole getting to know the other person, right? Portion of it. And if they say, "Well, I'm not going to show you mine," you'll find out. It's it sets the kind of tone of this air of negativity almost. It, it puts you on edge. At least it would put me on edge. Oh, like, yeah. I feel like I'm on the defensive already. Yeah, I totally felt that way. I mean, I totally felt. I mean, so I mean, so you agree? How do you feel about like fanatics and assassins and stuff like that? Oh, I it, per the rules, I think I I think they should be hidden. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I remember. I mean, I remember seeing discussions on forums or on Twitter or something like that about you know, if you've got an assassin and he's not on your, dis- you put your whole army out with your, dis- you know, on the table, uh, you know, because you know, a lot of time you got that extra room, so you're kind of off to the side with it, or you at least pull the models off and you know, did, off your display board, and you put the little trays off onto one side of the board, so you can pick them and deploy them. <laughs> And it's like, well, they didn't have any of those models on the table, and all of a sudden they pulled them out, and I don't have a problem with that. If it's a hidden unit, it should, should be, be hidden. hidden. You know, you're, you're paying for the points. You're paying points for it, mm-hmm. that hidden aspect of it. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, and that actually goes all the way back to when I was playing my first few games with Christopher in the basement. And I had, he came over, we had the table set up, and I had my models out there, and he's looking at my models, and he's looking at my models. It's like, that seems like very few for. For two, for you know, for two thousand, <laughs> and all of a sudden he looks at me and it, like his eyes wide. And he goes, "You've got miners," mm. and, I, and I was like, "I was like maybe," and I totally had miners under the table because, yeah. but that was the whole darn point. Is they're coming up under the you know, right? Oh yeah, and he didn't have a problem with it. He's like, "Well, no, it's a hidden." I mean, I've always thought that if it's a unit that doesn't come on, you don't have to tell me. You know, mm. if you've got gore ambushers. You put your unit of gore out. Well, these are my ambush. And if you want to say it, and then more, yeah, more power to you. But it's the surprise factor. It, it not only is it part of the game, but it it it's, it's part of the fluff, right? 
know, that's that whole surprise factor. So yeah, I mean, if you you know, if I know you've got, I mean, if if I see big blocks and night goblins, I'm going to assume there's going to be fanatics. Mm-hmm. But that that could be part of the trick too. Yeah, yeah. People have been people. That's a strategy, you know. You know, so I've got three units of night goblins, and you're pretty certain that I've got them, but I've only got it in one unit. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe I'm shoving the one forward that doesn't have them, so you're right. trying to avoid that. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's part of the game. Yeah, I mean that you know they're tricksy. Exactly right. <laughs> they're they're cunning, but brutal. And brutal and cunning. There you go. Uh, so yeah, I mean that's I mean that's sort of a little side topic, but I mean I don't know. It just that that does seem kind of gamey to me. I'm curious as to what what our listeners think, guys. Yeah, I'd love to see you know ju- jump in on the forums and let us know what you think about that. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear that as well. Yeah, miners, ambushers, um, you know, fanatics, or your army in general. Should yeah, it be, should it be hidden? Oh yeah, do you, are, yeah. Do you, should, I mean, it could be argued that you know through the fog of war and, and whatnot, the dawn attack that you don't know what the opponent's army is, is composed of. Right. You I mean, wouldn't know that the, these archers have a banner or whatever. Right. And I mean, and if that's what you're doing in 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 your garage, that's one thing. Like I said, but because you have time to set that up. But I think, as far as a at a tournament would go. I mean, I am I I go to hardly as many tournaments as, as you guys go to, but I think the vast majority of people walk up to the table and drop their army on the table, and you look over and say, "Oh, you're playing Skaven. What do you got there? Ooh, there's mm-hmm. two Doom Wheels. There's a ugh. Ooh, this is gonna be vicious. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a, it's a rare minority that hide it, and right there, I think when the vast majority of people don't do it, I think t- that would fall under tournament etiquette maybe to that mm. high, you know what i'm saying yeah, I, mean, yeah. I mean some people play open list tournaments you know if you've got an open list tournament then it don't even matter because i've right. already seen your list so that's, there's that's no an entirely different it. discussion on that one but uh i mean even in a closed list tournament i mean I, I i've been to several you know i've been and i mean heck i walked around at adepticon you know the la- mm-hmm. last year and another year without actually playing in the championships and you just don't see people doing that. So I think that right there is your answer. Mm. Um, that, yeah, I just thought that was an interesting uh, – I've seen people. I've heard of people doing that. So I'm just curious to, yeah, as to what your it, thoughts are. It totally are. happened to me, and it totally – not only put me on a weird footing. You know, Luckily, I had a lot of chaff, so I was able to sort of do okay. But it really did – like you said, it did. It really did set a tone. Um, By the end of that game, would you say that you guys were okay, the non-issue, or – Honestly, I don't even remember who won the game. I just remember. <laughs> I mean, dude, you play a lot of games. I yeah, don't even remember, yeah. the, the only reason the game stood out in my head was because it seemed really cagey. Mm. That you know, it's like, well, why don't you want me to see? Your, right. I mean, it 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 seemed like one of those you know, like modeling for advantage or any of those other things that people look at you and just are like, okay, you know what? I'm going to smash your models now. <laughs> you know, it's just like. <laughs> It seems it's it's one of those tactics that just I don't know douchebaggery is kind of how it seems like, and if and I'm not if, if that's the way certain people play, you know if that's normal in your gaming group then hey that's normal in your gaming maybe. group maybe there there, there maybe there are regions where there are people play like that and that's the norm yeah maybe we're abnormal I don't know but I mean in, in the tournaments I've been to at least here in the Midwest because Lord knows I've never left the Midwest for mm-hmm. heck I haven't even traveled the whole Midwest for tournaments. But that's just, you know, as far as 
how we that's not how i i mean you yep. go to a lot more tournaments than me has it, have it has anyone ever done it to you um they haven't not to my recollection that's, and that's never happened you've played in a lot more tournaments a lot more games than i have so i that should i mean that should speak to something so it's never happened that i can recall to me so so you got any uh tips or tricks about deployment tips or tricks um I keep in for me keep in mind that the game is only six turns long and there's only so much you can do with those six turns right so it's not so much tricks as it is more advice you know define what it is you want to do with your unit um, and deploy as such I know that's kind of you know abstract kind right. of really high level type advice that probably isn't really helpful but if you keep keep in mind that you only have six turns you mentioned that game against uh you and greg where you were circling the uh, the building and he, he couldn't get into combat right you know that's that's that whole thing right there is a game of okay in six turns i cannot let you get into combat where he's thinking in six turns i have to get into combat right. so it's it's that that sort of game that's being played in the deployment phase sure and once again i mean it, you know check watch your terrain you know, I mean, if there's big buildings or impassable terrain and you're setting up into a corner and now you have to split around it, if, if you decide, well, I've got I got to be the one to make the move, you know, make sure that your lanes are open to do what you want to do. Mm. Heck, I kind of had that problem when we played our last game um, with the dwarfs, uh, yeah, you know, the 4000 point game, because mm. that one building kind of got in my way. I wound up having to jump into it just. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily want to. Yeah, buildings are a strange thing because because once you enter it, though, you know you can. There's some fluidity in terms of how you can leave a building, right? So it's it it it's a nice tactical wrinkle in the game. Sure, um, which, is, which is pretty cool. You know what else? Um, obviously, throwing out your chaff and little bits first to try to see if your opponent, if he's got less drops or if he's got to sort of reveal his hand about you know where, mm-hmm. you know. Basically, throwing out the stuff you don't care about first leaves your your stronger unit, leaving your stronger units for later when you can hopefully choose what they're in front of and try to choose their matchup. Yeah, I would I would be careful not necessarily say put units out there that you don't care about, but they they have a certain level of uh, expendability. Like right. One of the things that I've done before and I still do and actually did in my game against John, the high elf player, is you know with I have, you know, Reaver units that can Vanguard. Well, just because they have Vanguard doesn't mean that I have to Vanguard. You know what I mean? Right. There was one unit of Reavers that I put out on a flank across from his archers, and I Vanguarded them right into range of his 30-inch bows. I'm like, why did I do that? <laughs> we started playing the game, <laughs> and they got shut up. Uh, luckily, they, I don't know if they passed their panic check or whatever, but they, they stayed on the board, but it was just a colossal waste of a move. Right. I don't know why. I still don't know why I did that. So... Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. You know, you have to have some kind of goal in mind for for that movement. Yeah, I mean, and for me, I'm like I said, spirit hosts and then zombies. My stuff that is the le- less effective units, mm-hmm. with hoping to to see where you put down that. Okay, now I want to put my grave guard or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Right. You know, this That's is the, the guy I want to match up. Oh. Um, I mean, I've I've played with you where you put that 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 night bus way off in a corner because it's mobile, it's fast, and you can pull it where you want. And that's where it's like, okay, well, 
now I got to throw something over here just to sort of either force you in a direction or move you around tie or up, tie me up. Yeah, nope. but if I've got a ton of deployments too, once that goes out, okay. Well, you know what? Now I could put this here, and I'm going to force you towards a direction at least. So you know, there's there's that. Uh, that's why yeah, that uh, that orc spell, the hand of Gork, is such a good oh. spell because it, it lets you. Uh, either like erase a mistake you made in deployment or capitalize on your opponent's mistake in deployment. Or just be a big pain in the butt and have <laughs> half of your army's points in that unit and then wait until I get within striking distance and then move it across the and board so that yep. I can never get in touch with it. Ugh, hate you. <laughs> one, one of the my favorite spells in the game because of that very reason. Yeah. Any any move, movement spells are I mean that's why movement spells are gold. That's also why in this edition movement spells no longer allow you to charge. Mm, yeah. You know if you have a movement spell you can move but you've got to stop. I mean Van Hels yeah. I used to be able to move my guys into whatever position I wanted. And then if I got off Van Hels boom I was charging you. Oh it was mm. oh it was phenomenal. Now the game's like ooh no 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 no. Yeah. That's too powerful because movement is so powerful. But yeah, they throw all, the, throw all that back uh, quite a bit. The, the or, old orc wah used to right. be able to wah into combat. Oh, that's so good. Anymore. Yeah. Well, the wah now is no good, but let's not even get into that. Right, right, right. So my last little bit was, and I remember listening to, uh, and this was a long time ago, listening to the guys talk about their deployment where they would actually put like like their their army books and stuff down on their side of the table, but maybe in the corner. So they would put the big red book or their army books on the one corner. They'd be deploying everywhere else, almost sort of like filling up that space visually so that you wouldn't think anything's going to be there. So maybe you're going to put your chaff or something. You're like, oh, look, they're going to deploy over there because obviously they wouldn't put a book down where they want to put their models. And so then you're putting your stuff out and they're like, oh, that side's sort of safe. And then you pick up your books and move them two thirds of the way through deployment and put stuff there. Right. (laughs) And you know what? I mean, that's. You're psyching out your opponent. That's really not. That's funny that they purposely, you know, lay out those little mines to sort of trick the opponent. Or another thing they talk about is, you know, just watch where your eyes are going, especially when you're deploying, looking at your areas. You know, don't, you know, if 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 you're setting up something where you're throwing all your chaff sort of in certain areas so that you can get that piece, don't be constantly eyeballing that area mm-hmm. because your opponent, yeah, the- you know, if they pick up on that, I mean, you're giving away through other things other than hiding your army you're giving your, away your, poker your, face. your yeah exactly you got to have some yeah. some sort of a poker face yeah that's uh, that's that's actually a good point because when you deploy i think if you deploy with some uh, some some purpose like directness like there's no hesitation on your part that i think that plants a seed in your opponent's mind that oh he's deploying with confidence he he really knows what he wants to do and i, good I think that's point. that's a that's a interesting part of that game so again when you're in your basement and practicing deployment by yourself, yeah, it's weird. But once you go through the motions and you know what you want to go where, yep. I think you can really set the tone with your opponent in the, the, the that deployment phase. Well, and there's a couple of benefits. I mean, if you're in a tournament, deploying quickly, I mean, you want to get deployed and play, you know, because yeah. you don't want to lose time. Especially me with all the regrowing and all this stuff going back. I mean, it, you know... It takes me a long, a bit of a long time to get through my turns, and not because I'm playing slow, but it's it makes it. I mean, I'm going to take the whole time to get through my six turns. Sure, so yeah, wasting you know, save, t- save time where you can, right? And plus, if they put something down, and then you sit there and you're like, oh, and then you're looking at it, and then you're looking at your board like you don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're giving the exact opposite uh, sort of reaction. Like this guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
you know, and so you you know you you're coming, you, you seem less confident. But if if no matter what you put, I'm like, even if I'm not certain, you know, put it there. Make sure you put it where you want it. You know, you, you know, don't finagle and finesse too much. Just mm-hmm. make sure, measure if you're one. You know, okay, twelve inches. I got this space. Boom, boom, boom. Get it on the table. Quit agonizing over. It. Don't sit there with your finger on the on the tray. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, you know, right. like oh. I haven't let go yet. Exactly. Just you know that confidence that that's going to say something. That's going to set a tone to your opponent. You're right. You're dead right on that. So. So yeah, there's some general thoughts uh, on deployment 102. Deployment, yeah, Garage 102. So that's it. You know, we're going to come back and uh, okay. When we come back, it's going to sound a lot different because we recorded it last episode. And um, we uh, is, is that the the night I went ethereal again? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the night. You, that's the night you went. Uh, you we went on a 1920s wire recorder, I think. <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. But uh, so we're going to come back with uh, the painting segment that we didn't fit into last episode. And so when we come back, we'll have that for you. And uh, after that, we'll come back and wrap up the show. So we'll be right back. Hey folks, it's Dave, and I wanted to talk to you for a minute about Battle Foam. You've all heard me talk about it before. The foam is firm. It doesn't separate from the base. They custom cut, design, make any piece of foam you want to fit any model you want. Anytime a new army comes out, within days, you've got Battle Foam cut and designed to fit those models. This isn't a game company making cases on the side. This is a carrying case company making foam and custom carrying cases to protect your army. It's what they do. It's all they do. Check it out at BattleFoam.com. Battle Foam, protecting your army. We're back. Garage Hammer 102. Shutting down the right side of the brain, opening up the left side of the brain now, folks. Yes, so you want to talk some painting? Yeah, because you have been doing a lot of painting, which I haven't, but you've been doing something that I'm going to have to do, and it's if, if you know something else I'm sort of dreading. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, once you start getting into it, uh, you find that it is actually fun again. Yeah. But, I feel like getting ready for it mentally is is the hard part. Yeah. Uh, so you have basically had to s- strip down and and repaint, or have you stripped down, or did you just buy new models? No, I just I just bought new models. So what prompted this was, um, you know, with the, the current Hiles that I'm working on, they're all brand new models. I, I've been doing a lot of comparing and contrasting to the original Hiles that I painted, you know, ten plus years ago. Right. And I wanted to talk a little bit about you know what I've learned since then, what I've done differently, and pass on what what knowledge I do have. Now, this isn't by no means an advanced painting uh, segment. I, I would I would consider this you know to be the journey from a beginning painter to um, uh, intermediate type. Okay. Painting. Okay. Um, yeah, and like I said, I was really excited when you brought this up and sent me your notes because. 
what you're doing here is what I'm going to have to do eventually with my dwarf army. Now, it's not a 10-year difference, but I did paint my dwarf army, what, four years ago? Five, almost five. Almost five. Uh, my initial dwarf army, the stuff that I painted, and, you know, man, I thought it was good when I first did it. Uh-huh. And now every time I pull them out and look at them, I just, I, I, I just want to cry. I mean... <laughs> Well, I think every time you pick up the brush, even, uh, you know, you've learned a little bit more since last time, uh, different color combinations um, that you can apply to your next project. So it's always, it's a constant learning uh, process. So let's, I I guess the the focus on here is sort of, you know, how how has your painting styles changed since you painted the first ones? Mm. Now, I noticed here in your notes that one of the big differences is uh lighting yes this is a key an absolute uh vital to to improve painting and i actually have you to thank for it because you know i'm actually sitting here at my desk even as we talk having with this uh this hobby light i think it's an ot light brand true color light yes like a little hobby light that you kind of flip open and it's got these nice um i don't know if they're they're not fluorescent they're sort of daylight bulbs that really focus light yeah, they're the daylight area. bulbs, yeah. And, you know, before that, I never, I thought, oh, I don't really need that. I just flip on all the lights in the kitchen, and that's good enough. No. Once I got this light, I'm like, oh, my gosh. It, it really, like, talk about revealing, you know, the light of the situation. It, it It's a huge difference. lights up every detail, and you, there's no eye strain on your part. You just have to turn the model to see, to focus in, and get yeah. that light in there. No, I was yeah, a, I was a difference. I was a bit ahead of the curve on that only because I'd seen other people painting models and Christopher had painted for a long time and he always said that a really good painting light was great and I was at Hobby Lobby and they were having like 50% off and I bought one of those uh, the like the one in the 40-year-old version where he's got the round hobby light with the mirror oh, the, yeah. with the with the magnifying uh-huh. glass in the middle. I yep. almost never use that magnifying glass cuz I I don't need it and it's weird when you use it. One of the best inve- hobby investments I I think I've ever bought. Probably brushes one this light is probably an easy number 2. And yeah. even in like during the day, I'll still I'll still, you know, plug this in and use it. Oh yeah. Uh, cuz I mean it's just the different the daylight bulb the difference in the in the light oh they're fantastic it's if yeah. you can afford one of these painting lights buy them totally. don't ask questions buy it yeah you won't notice the difference until you flip it on and look at your miniature underneath it but it, it you will notice the difference yeah um so yeah lighting was uh the the first you know kind of big uh jump the other one was uh color choices yeah uh, we've, I've kind of talked a little bit about this before. You know, previously, I think I was just impatient, and so I'd run through and paint an entire unit before deciding whether or not it was the right choice. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't, then I just, I just stuck with it, and I, I just used it. Right. And, but eventually, knowing that I wasn't happy with it or it didn't match the other units in my army, I'd, I'd strip that unit and then start start again. And that happened way too often. So. I've kind of tempered that by trying to take my time up front. And if you make that upfront investment and test with test your colors and kind of try different things before you commit, in the long run, that saves me time. I had no no I no clue. I mean, I literally went through with my first army and said, All right, long beards, uh, they're gonna be light blue. Mm-hmm. Um, guys with the cannons will be greens and browns. Um, you know, hammerers have golden armor because they're the king's guard. Uh, Ironbreakers have silver armor. It's grandma. I mean, literally, just 
pick, you know, right. dwarf warriors are greens and reds because that's a good dwarf color. The longbeards have the light blue because uh, they'll stand out. And mm-hmm. uh, actually, talk about just choosing things for random ideas. Yeah. Uh, the Hobbit, when all the dwarfs come to, to Bilbo's house for the first time and they all hang up their hats. Yeah. Thorin had that light blue hat. His hat was different than the rest of their hats. His hat was a very light pale blue. And I said, "Oh, he's the eldest one. He's the guy that's, you know, has the has the experience and all this, and he has the pale blue hat." So, hey, my longbeards will be pale blue. I mean, that's <laughs> I mean, no real kind of kind of random. No cohesion to that army yeah. whatsoever. I mean, you could tell what unit was what, which is what I thought was important. You should be able to tell the longbeards from the warriors. Um, it's it's kind of a tricky one. Like you want the units to be subtly different, but taken as a whole, the army sh- should look like a cohesive force. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that's that's something that you learn how to do over experience. So certainly by looking at other armies and seeing how other people uh, address that. Right. Um, so that said, what I do is I do a lot of uh, call it kind of color testing on models that are primed that I'm, I'm not using or, or don't plan on using for a while. So with, uh, with high elves, it's a lot of sword masters. They just, I just don't use a lot of them. So, but they're a good test model because they have a lot of armor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, night goblins. I, I have a, just a ton of those lying around all over the place. I, I feel like, but that's a good test model for doing, um, testing for cloth. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the, the, the big key there is, you know, before I would sit down to paint and I think, okay, you know what, it's serious painting time, it's going to be mistake-free and flawless, everything that I paint is going to be perfect, where it, it really doesn't work that way. I think there's a lot of trial and error, like I said, I think you have to find out um, what the right combinations are, the right, the right steps for you are. Let me ask you this. Mm. The color scheme that we were talking about earlier for your... Um you know the the, the red and khaki mm-hmm. uh, elves, which God, I love them. How many like, how many tests? Uh, how many? Oh my gosh! How many did you go through? How many did you paint before you said I like this one? Well, I, I, I did. I, mean, I know you showed us like the next to last one. You know what I'm saying? Like I right. saw I saw like two different versions of it. How many versions were there before the one I saw? Well, I started way back on a spear elf that I painted probably about seven times really and uh, yeah took pictures and tweeted them and rotor was like you know he he saw the, all the pictures i was putting up there he was like you should just photoshop all your tests which is a good idea i should do that so about seven spear elves um and then i started doing archers archers is probably three or four before i settled on the current color scheme huh so quite a few so I, I just shouldn't be afraid of that. I'm going to be doing several takes on this model before I find one I like. I, I think it's a good time investment up front. Okay. Uh, and, and don't be afraid to, uh, to try different things. It's, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just testing. That's why I do it on my Night Goblins or Swordmasters, just to see what things will look like and experiment with new uh, paints or washes or color combinations. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah, so that's it for color choice. So the next one is um, paint consistency, and this is a big one that I've only lear- learned probably in the past couple of years. This is kind of funny because it's anytime anyone talks about what you learn about painting, this mm-hmm. first one is the thing. I, I did it too, uh, but this is back when I was painting uh, models from White Wolf, 
when they came out with their first miniature slash RPG where you could buy miniatures for your role-playing game. I was playing mm-hmm. Trinity, which was also known as Eon, uh, okay. but painting directly out of the pot. Don't do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it's hard to resist. I still do it. I still catch myself doing it once in a while. I, I see a lot of other people doing it, so I know it's common. It's just easy. Sometimes you know? with the washes, maybe, but I mm-hmm. never. And I did it with those models, and that was. The, it's funny. I was painting... Um, and I, I didn't know anyone who painted models, so of course I was painting under mm-hmm. the pot. Uh, sure. Christopher came by, and I was like, oh, look what I'm doing. This is kind of this new thing from White. And he's like, oh, that's really cool. I do painting too. And it was um, – that was like the first tip I ever got. And it seems it seems so obvious now, but it's like anytime someone starts painting, it's like you almost want to tell them, now, you, you know to take it and put it on a belt and thin it out a little bit. Right. And, and it all comes down to um – Control and consistency on the model. If it's too thick, take it directly out of the pot. You can't control the paint; and it starts to chunk up. Yeah, it, it 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 takes out the detail. It does. Yeah. You know, you cover up the. If it's that thick, you're losing the little the the the, the chainmail or the yeah, face. The subtleties the in the model, exactly. Um, now I wanted so, to yeah. ask you about mm-hmm. this next part, though. Uh, you know, watering down paints is, is yeah, I think we all kind of know that, and I don't want to skip it if you had something you really want to say about it. But this uh, drying retarder and glaze medium flow improver, I don't have any of this stuff. And I, I hear about it, A, where do I get this stuff? Because I never see it at UGG. Um, and B, like, like how do you use it? What's, how do you use it? Okay, yeah. so, so where do you get it? I'm sure you can find it online. Uh, Secret Weapon Miniatures, I think, has some. Okay. Uh, the ones that I have are all Reaper. Okay. Uh, Reaper paints. I think the Drawing Retarder and Flow Improver, you could probably get at UGG, because I know they carry Reaper paints. Okay, I just I haven't seen it. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, yeah. clear cap in a, in a white bottle, so I, okay. I'm pretty sure they have it. If not, uh, ask Kathleen. I'm sure she'll put it in order for you. Now, so flow Improver. I mean, um, I mean, I thought... I add a little water and it flows really nice. Why, why flow improver? What's the difference? This is um, probably the one that I, I know the least about. So what okay. I do is <laughs> I'll, I'll pour my, the paint out onto my palette and I'll add a couple of drops of flow improver and maybe one or two drops of water. Okay. And what I found is that the paint flows more easily into recesses and it flows on smoother. Is it a, is that a placebo effect? And I, and I think that's, it's being better than it really is. I don't know, but that's how I that's how I use it. Um, Jared Horseman, who some people know from Twitter, right. suggested that uh, you add flow improver to your water. So every time you 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 wash your brush, you get a little bit of flow improver. I don't know if that's to help the paint get off your brush, and it still retains it in the brushes, so that when you go to paint again, the flow improver is still on your brush. I'm not quite sure, but I, the way I've been using it lately is just applying it directly to my paint to get a what I think is a more even coverage. Okay. Uh, so that's that's one. The next one is um, a glaze medium, which I think if you do a lot of layering, okay, shading and, and, and gradations, I think you use uh, the glaze medium for this. It basically makes um, the paint more uh, transparent. So a glaze medium. Now, is that just like the GW glazes? Is that what you're talking about? Like, or, or is no, it for... no. Okay, what it is, is it? Uh, the glaze medium? The glaze medium comes in a. Um, I don't think GW has a, a, a glaze medium. I could be mistaken. But what this does is basically called Lamian medium, and I'm assuming that's what it is, but I don't know. It may be. It may be. 
Um, it's basically an acrylic resin that you add to paint that kind of it thins it out. It waters it down a little bit. Okay. It's almost like um, I don't know if you're familiar with Photoshop, but if uh, there's there's a, a tool in Photoshop where you can adjust how thick a layer is. Okay. Like, like imagine you have two pieces of paper. Right. A, a black piece of paper on top of a white one. Okay. The black one, you can adjust the layer from 100%, so it's totally black, to 0%, where it's completely see-through. Okay, so the, so it'll affect the opacity of the... Precisely. So the more glaze medium you add, the more opaque that layer will be. So, and I, I think that this is what uh, the, the, the top-tier painters, you know, your Johnny Hastings, etc., I, I suspect that they use a lot of this to achieve those really subtle gradations from, let's say, a, a really dark blue to a really light blue by using a lot of um, this glaze medium in between. Okay. So you're gradually getting lighter, but you can control it because it's very uh, watery and it's very light. So do you so, use the glaze medium and the flow improver, or does the glaze medium already improve the flow? Uh, good question, and I don't know. Okay, I I, I I use just the glaze medium. Okay, um, the flow improver I use a lot for uh, base coats uh, and that sort of thing. Okay, you know, large large flat areas. If you, I would imagine if you, if you paint something like a, a Land Raider with lots of flat, or like a steam tank, a lot of flat surfaces, it's hard to you, you get a lot of like the brush strokes in your paint. Right, a flow improver would probably help solve. Some of that. Okay, and then the glaze medium is for your hot, your your highlighting and stuff like that, or your shading. You, that. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And then the, um, the the final one is the the drying retarder. This basically lets you, it you know, it lengthens the drying time of your paint, so you can do more things with it before it dries out. Okay. And uh, I think this is just nice because it lets your paints uh, stay controllable longer. And again, this goes back to the watering down of your paints, the moisture. The moisture is your friend. That's your ally, ultimate right. friend. And it's 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 easy to, to paint for a while and your paint slowly gets drier. Right. You know, the yeah. heat of your light or whatever. Um, so it's it's easy to forget, like, to add more water to that. And I think once you do that, you'll think, oh, this is so much better than what it was two seconds ago before the water. So now is this something that um... – the drying retarder you could use. I know some people use a wet palette, uh, and I know the wet palette. I've seen it just keep paints dry for literally forever. So yeah. if you don't want to work with the wet palette and the time spent working on it, uh, a drying retarder works is, is a good substitute. I think for the wet palette. I think it is a good substitute. Uh, I've actually I, I've created a wet palette and actually used drying retarder with the wet palette. Okay. Drying retarder I found is a good. Uh, Almost works like a, a glaze medium, where it thins down the paint. Okay, I, I've used the the glaze medium and the the drying retarder sort of sort of interchangeably. Okay, but uh, but that is a good segue. Now, have you used uh, a wet palette? I have. I just started it with this current high elf army for the first time ever. Okay, uh, have you ever used one? Uh, no, I actually had I. I picked up like the parchment paper and everything to do the setup, and I've just never really had a need for it. So. I would recommend, especially with your about to start your dwarves, that that's a good time, a good habit to get into from the start. Okay. Um, especially if you if you do a lot of blending, I think you're you're going to experiment with the, the non-metallic metals. I think keeping your paints and the gradations that you that you mix 
keeping that uh, readily available is a huge, massive time saver. Okay, now for people who don't know how to do a wet palette, I don't know how you do it, but the way I had it, which it was explained to me and the way I put it together was I got like a little plastic, a, a, a shallow little plastic Tupperware sort of pan, mm-hmm. um, put in a couple of sponges on the pan with the, you know, like soft sponges, not the scrubby sponges. Right. Um, put some, got them just lightly damp. But then I put water into the into the bottom of the container so that they will stay damp. And mm-hmm. then you take parchment paper, which is not wax paper because wax paper will stop the water from getting through. But parchment paper will let it so kind of beat through. Yeah. So you put the parchment paper down on top of the sponges and you use that as your palette. So you're constantly getting that wet sponge, keeping the mm-hmm. parchment paper slightly wet, which in, mm-hmm. in, in turn is basically keeping your paint from drying out. Yeah, it keeps the moisture locked in. Um, I, I build mine a little bit differently in that I line the bottom not with sponges, but with uh, uh, two layers of paper towel. Oh, okay, just a couple layers of damp paper towel. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I find that retains the moisture enough. But uh, the important part with that wet palette is when you're done at the end of the night is to cover it with the lid of your Tupperware or whatever and then put it in your refrigerator. Oh, yes, yeah. Even when I worked with oil paints, you'd put on a paper pallet, put the pallet on top, stick it in your freezer, or and you could come take it out next week mm-hmm. in the morning. And by the time you went to painting class in the afternoon, it was it, the paint was still good. Yeah, it's still just ready to go. So if you've mixed all these gradations for, you know, like you, you mentioned your mother of pearl uh, color scheme or, you know, highlighting from dark red to light red or whatever it is, you don't have to mix it all again. It's the, the paint that you've mixed the night before is retained in your wet palette. Oh, okay. So I, it's a, it's an invaluable tool. And it takes the sting out of, oh, i got to set my paints up again. You don't have to do it. It's already done. Yeah. You hit the ground, hit the ground running. Excellent. All right. So um, you know what? Let, why don't we do this? Why don't we pause here? We're going to talk about, uh, you know, applying the paint uh, after, you know, now that we've talked about the tools and the palettes. Let's take a quick break, come back, and then talk about the paint uh, application. That sounds like a plan. All right. Check out that guy in the Garage Hammer shirt. Who cares about him? Look at that guy with the Garage Hammer hoodie. That's right, guys. Nothing tells the ladies I'm one of the gaming elite like GarageWare. So hurry to garagehammer.net slash store, and soon you'll be the guy at game night that all the gamer chicks are talking about. Remember, boys, first you get your gear, then you win all your games, then you get the chicks. That's right, boys. The only gamers we notice are in Garage Gear. And we're back, ready to talk about uh, applying paint and how uh, how we paint the models. So now, um, there's lots of different ways you can paint your models. Um, you know, 
I think the first thing I was taught, and I was actually this was when I was at GW, and I had they had they used to have GW used to have around Christmas time you could sign up for like a five week class, and they would teach you the basics of modeling and painting, mm-hmm. and you'd get a, like an army case with it to put your models in. Okay. And I remember signing up for that class and them giving me the basics of primate black. Here's how you sort of dry brush over the armor to get the the mm-hmm. chains and how you do this, that, and the other. And I remember them teaching me always paint the stuff that's deepest in. So do like the faces and the stuff that's the hardest to get to on the model. Um, hmm. Because, you know what I'm saying? Like, especially with the dwarfs, the face is so buried there. Right. That if you paint all the armor and stuff, then you try to get in and get the face. It's in such a small area that you're going to wind up going outside. It's hard to get of, to, sure. Yeah. So to get the hard to get to stuff first and then paint over that. So they were actually going on a location-based paint hmm. application. Um but I, I don't think you do it that way, and I know since then I don't often do it that way. I go more for a um, color base. That's I, I think that's largely a personal preference thing. Uh, I I usually start I tend to with with you know infantry models or whatever start with the larger parts first and then work in towards the details okay. like gems and eyes. I are always the last things that I do. Okay, yeah, gems. Yeah, ugh, no kidding. See, my um, biggest but, fear. Is just trying to get into those eyes and then getting everything I just painted. Now I've got white on them or something like that, you know, because uh, it's that's, such a that's small okay. space, you know. It is that that's okay. A, a, a lot of painting that, especially on the detail front, is a lot of like touch ups and redo and covering up stuff that you messed up. I, I just I find a lot. I do a lot of that, okay. and I think the quality of your end product is dependent on how much patience you have for the the, the retouching. Yeah, no, no kidding, no kidding. Um, so you always start now. We you obviously start with your base coat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the way that uh, I started was similar to you, um, kind of formulaic. You know, do your base coat, do an ink wash, uh, whether it's um, you know the the original inks that GW had way back, which were awful. Uh, going to the Devlin Mud era uh, washes, which were really good. Um, okay. I would start off with base coating and then just ink, inking the whole thing, just coating the whole thing in, in, in a wash, and then maybe a dry brush. Um, now, when, when I, you ink, I mean, is that something different than than using a wash? What's the difference? Um, I couldn't tell you what the difference is. I think the ink is a little bit more concentrated of a, of a pigment. Okay. So they're a little bit different in the end result, and it's it's a heavier coverage. Okay. Whereas the washes, I think they they tend to pool into the recesses more naturally. So depending on what you're trying to do, the, the inks I think will change the color of your base coat, whereas the washes will accentuate the shadows a little bit better. Okay. Um. So, since then, no, oh, go ahead. No, okay. And so then you drive us over. So go ahead. Since then, you do. So since then, I've kind of experimented going from uh, light to dark. So if your base coat is your lightest color, shade down from that. Okay. Which I find, you know, with high elves, if I were to do a lot of white or, you know, really light color, that's probably what I do. Or um, if you start in the, medi- the, the medium range, so whatever your neutral color is, and then shade up to your lights and then down to your darks from there. Is that the way, that's the way you do it now? That is the way I'm currently doing it, yeah. That's yeah. I, that's that's actually mine too. I'll, I'll pick that medium coat as your base coat. Mm-hmm. Darken up the darken up the shaded areas. Lighten up the highlighted areas. That do you find you do a lot of paint mixing, or do you just pull the next darkest color? Um, 
I, I, I will, uh, a lot of times I will just kind of, I will find three or four different shades and I'll take that medium one and then I'll just pick that next diff, that next right. color and go that way. Um, my blending technique is not very good right now. I will admit that. Um, you can look at my grave garden and see it. Yes, they highlight up from that dark green to that really light green, but you can see each area. It's like, okay, here's a slightly highlighted. Inside that's another lighter coat. Inside that's another lighter coat. The transitions are, I don't, I don't have they're, that. They're visible. Well, yeah, I just I don't I don't I don't know how to do it really. I mean, basically, it's come down. I don't get it. Like I I haven't found a way to do it that makes it work yet. So I I know the the theory of it, and I and I can do it on some level, but I haven't perfected it. I, I will say, if you pick up the glaze medium, you know, maybe you and I could sit down in person, and I can show you what I know. Okay. Uh, that might that might help you. No, I keep I, I do keep hearing people saying that when you're done, if you put a wash or or a glaze over it. Mm-hmm. Um, it will help to smooth those transitions as it sort of adds a, 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 a consistent mm-hmm. coat over the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am, you know, I am having, you know, I, I do have a little trouble with it, you know. Okay. So, so yeah, we'll, we can certainly sit down and, and try that. Uh, doing a wash over at the end of it, I think it depends on how good you are um, with your transitions. You might not need that 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 wash at the end. Okay. You know what I mean? If, yeah. you, if you have good control over your gradations and they're 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 smooth, you might not need that wash. Sure. But um, so yeah, that's that's uh, you know one thing I do want to mention is um, Secret Weapon Miniatures. They put out that line of uh, washes. Yep. And I've been using those a lot lately, and they are phenomenal. Oh yeah, I uh, you've been telling saying about it. I actually based on your recommendations and with all the flipping paints I have. I I told Kathleen I said whatever it was Chris you wanted to order order it for me. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean if you're raging about them this much and you are a better painter than I am if you think they're this good I, I'm just taking your word for it like I haven't even tried them yet and I think I ordered whatever eight or nine you ordered I'm like I'll oh. take them. Okay, they haven't arrived yet for you though, have they? No, I'm still waiting. They would oh, okay. be a week or so, but yeah. I, yeah, I, mean, I, I haven't. I have enough of them where I'm not that worried about getting them right away. Like I'm, mm. it's, it's not like I can't go on without them, but I do definitely mm. want to try them. Yeah, I think once once you get those and start applying them, uh, and the, the other trick is to to you know mix your your flow improver or your glaze medium or your drying retarder with these washes. I had never done that before um, because they're so the, the washes to start with are so light, right? In terms, you know, they're so opaque. That uh, you can really do some con- nice controlled shading with the benefit of your your glaze medium or, or whatnot. Oh, cool! Um, so that's that's a nice uh, feather, a nice arrow that you can put in your quiver in terms of tools that uh, you know weapons that you used uh, when you paint. So so give that a try. I'm curious to see if you get any good results with that. So take your take take the take the washes and add a little glaze medium to the washes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, and then don't just brush it onto your miniature. You have to kind of, with a fine brush, strategically place where you're putting that shadow or that highlight or whatever it is. I saw that in the Wapple video. Or I, I, mean, I know a lot of people have bought these Jim Wapple videos that he did the Kickstarter for. A lot of people just bought that shaded base coat one, which I learned a lot from that, I'll tell you right now. But I have about, I bought like 10 other ones too. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them I got where he just paints the whole model with just different shades of green. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what he his his idea of inking. He's like he just takes a wash but puts it in very specific spots. That's yeah. kind of what he calls yeah. inking. And mm-hmm. you never, I mean, they show you how you can just. I mean, you used to be able to take Devlin mud and slap it on, and it is so thin that it goes into the cracks and mm-hmm. doesn't do too much else in the higher spots. But when you see someone really focus placing those those washes into certain spots and really almost using them as another paint, that right. you know it's. It really, uh, yeah, it can be really cool. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's good to see if you can strategically place those uh, those washes in the recesses. You know, that's your shadow. Then your your base coat is your mid, and then you're free to highlight on the the, the protruding parts. You know, one or two brighter colors up to to really create that contrast. Yeah, and again, it's it's something that I'm still learning how to do. I haven't mastered it, but um, now. I uh, I want to ask you about your how, when you're painting with your brushes now. I I haven't had too much trouble with brush control per se. Mm-hmm. Um, I I but it's like you know I know some people do different things. I'm the one I hold the model in one hand. I got the brush in the other, and I will put the heels of my palms together. Sure. Uh, I will also take the hand with the brush. And I will put one finger on the base of the model. And I know it seems weird, but there's always one finger on the base of the model. I just think that that touching it, you know, like you know, my, you know, I don't know how. It my, keeps it steady. But yeah. Not just not just steady. I'm holding it in my right hand. I got my paintbrush in my left hand. One of the fingers in my left hand is while I'm brushing is touching the base of that model. And I think it's just that hand. Now with that touch, I mean mentally, I you know, I know exactly where that thing is. You know what I'm saying? There's no moving to the wrong spot because I've sort of got it. Right. Um, and that's why I tend to hold it. But even even so, I just, I mean, hitting the like the eyeballs, getting into those little spots, I just, there's there's a there's a level, or freehanding, that level of control. I just don't seem to be able to make that darn brush do that thing. Uh, and I know you do a lot of freehand. How do you keep the control so tight? The moisture. Moisture is the key um, that lets you control the pigment. Uh, you can layer it on instead of so. So way back when I first tried to my my first freehand banner, you know this is you know year one or year two of my Warhammer career. Okay. Open open the paint. There's my banner. It's primed, uh, or it's got a base coat on it. I want to have a pattern of a dragon on it, right? I stick my my brush in my paint pot and start painting, trying to paint a dragon on this banner, and it gets hard because. A, the paint is not cut. It's straight out of the pot, so it's very thick. Right. And so you can't get any sort of detail. If you just want to draw a simple line of, the, let's say, the dragon's spine, right. you can't do that because the paint goes. It starts off really thick, and then as you're going, you know, it runs out, and you get all these brush strokes. Right? Oh, right, right, right. So it's hard to apply that. Where you go with the flow improver uh, and a lot of moisture, it's it becomes more like a watercolor in terms of how you apply it. The paint is very liquidy. And very viscous, so it it goes on there very lightly, but you can see it. Okay, and it, that's the key. So you just do it, and it, it might take successive layers, but you get that first layer on there, so you can see at least the outline of the wing or whatever it is. Okay, and then you gradually add more layers to it, or gradually more pigment, less water, whatever it is, um, to build up um, to build up that color. Okay, I see what you're saying. 
Yeah, I, I struggled. I'm like, oh, freehand panners? Oh, or freehand banners? Oh, I, I can't do it. But once you start adding um, more moisture to the paint, that that's the key. That's the critical part. I guess I know people say they got to make it so thin, so thin, so thin. And I've never actually seen any. I'm, I'm, I'm a very good learner when I see what somebody's doing so I can have an example there. And you know, just saying the thin, I, I, it seems like it always seems to me it's like, well, how thin? You know, how many layers? Bef- you know, you know, how many? It, it's a hard thing to explain. So you, you're right. It's something that you have to see. It's something that you have to feel. Uh, once you get the the, the right amount of pig, uh, watered down paint on your brush, and you you run it across your piece of paper as a test or your model or whatever, if you can control it and the paint is kind of gliding off of your brush onto the model, okay, it's something that you just have to know that it feels right before you can. Keep on going with it. Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, and speaking of brush control, I just mm-hmm. I, I wanted to mention this, and I know you were kind of amazed by it too. Once again, watching what when you know doing this sort of the shaded blending technique that we were watching with Wapple doing it, um, that idea of when he's first putting colors on the model, you know, and he's you know he's going with different shades, so he's got. You know, his base color, you know, he was doing, I think, an orc, and so he was mostly browns, and he had a, just painted the whole thing with his base brown, went with a slightly lighter brown, and started just sloshing that on the top. Not worrying about being in the lines, worrying about getting those basic colors down and saying, right. blending that color so it's already sort of blended and shaded, and then you can, then when you go in to add details, mm-hmm. those details. But he holds his brush, first of all, he uses like a number eight brush. To put the base coat on, so it's a very big brush, so he's, he can't do details. And he holds mm-hmm. it at the back. Did you see that? Where he holds it at the back of the... Way at yeah, the end of the brush, not not down towards the metal um, the metal part of it, but like the, the opposite end of it. Yeah, right? the back end. Like it's almost as far away as you can hold it, so he, do, mm-hmm. so he can't get sharp, control. tight control. Uh, it's, it's very interesting to me. Um, that, that's well, you know, that's, idea. that's you can see the painter side of him because he's a professional painter, and he's a watercolor artist, which I didn't realize mm-hmm. he's a. That's a, that's a whole different can of worms right there. But that makes complete sense because watercolor, you, you have to control the the liquid, you know, and how it uh, spreads out on the paper. Right, but that's a very hard thing to do. Yeah, uh, so it makes sense that he has such good yeah. control on, on paint on the model. But yeah, you're right. He's he's applying pigment. In that very painterly way, holding the brush on the opposite end, he's not so worried about uh, the precision. He's more worried about the the tone and what colors mix with what to get the right hues. Right, and then he goes because that, 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 that I think that's a big thing. Is you look at your base coat and everyone puts your base coat on, and it's like your base coat is pretty much everything. And if he can get the highlights and the shades in that base coat, mm. then when you're going back and you're adding in trim on the uh, you know, the, hitting the you know highlights on the edge of the metal, or you know he's got a belt, or he's got you know a little pouch. You can kind of go in there and just then you can go in with your precision. Right, but it's like Do that the, the that that yeah. base. He just keeps in, and I guess this is something that I'm trying to take away from what he's doing, and it's not working very well with dwarfs because they are so darn tiny. Mm. But it's like don't even worry about that. Just get your paint on your model. Get paint right. on the model. Get it done. Get that base coat. Get that color you want in there. And then worry about all the the finer details later, and it's yeah, that's really that's cool. a struggle. I think um, even I, I struggle with that now. Is when I apply paint to the model, it's got to be perfect. I don't want to have to go back and redo this again. Um, so I, it's going to be a very controlled application. Whereas he just sloshes it on there. But it is about- all with that base coating too. I mean, you see him going back later. I mean, even when he goes back, 
later and does the other colors in different spots. He's kind of coming right up to the edge. He's not, but he's not. He's not. It's the the, the worry's not there. It's, I mean, it's obviously it's a difficult technique. A lot of people have watched that video, and a lot of people have gotten together and said, you know, oh, I, I watched that, and I'm just like, oh, wow, yeah. You know, it almost has the exact opposite effect. I look at that and say, crap, um, I'm <laughs> out of my league. I can't do that. Which well, I, I mean, he's he's a professional. He went to school for it. He's been doing it for his job for years. It's not something that you're going to pick up by watching a video, right? You got to practice I mean? it, and that's what yeah. I've been doing. Like I said, I've been watching that stupid. Both I have the regular non-metallic metals, and I have the Sky Earth non-metallic metals. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's actually got videos just on bronze, just on gold, just on you know the different the different types of metals. And I have the two basics, and I've watched them both about three, four times, and I'm just now starting to feel like I get what I'm seeing him do, and I'm ready right. to give it a shot. It's a, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's really eye-opening to watch him uh, apply paint. His, his brush movements are more circular, more organic, whereas mine, I don't know about you, but mine are typically more uh, stabs and strokes. His is very organic, very you, fluid. You watch his, and he does. He's, I mean, he's like a person working on a canvas, and I feel like I mean, and, and 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 not to downplay what we're doing, but I think a a, a decent comparison is here watching someone because I do oil painting too. I paint in oils, you know, like that, you know, that Bob Ross type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, I took oil painting classes, and it's the difference between painting on a canvas where you're doing that organic and this and this and the round movements and doing all that stuff. Right. Um, that's the type of stuff he's doing, and I'm doing like. I, I, like coloring book stuff. Like I'm literally going in and trying yeah. to. I'm coloring in. Stay the, in the lines. Stay in the yeah. lines. Do mm-hmm. my colors in this particular spot. Don't go outside of the lines. If you're really fancy, you'll go back later and go along the edges with something a little darker or a little lighter to make it stand out. You know. Mm-hmm. But it's that whole. Yeah. It's 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 literally the difference between someone painting on a canvas and someone just filling in the. You know. Filling in the totally. staying in the lines on a on a he, color. He's control he's controlling the color and, and dictating how the color is looking. Whereas I feel like I'm just applying applying color. Is it, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know if that and slight I, difference. There. And I I think after seeing it, that's kind of what I what I'd like to strive towards is to getting that because I mean whether I wind up using his technique or not, it's those transitions, those smooth transitions. There's the that's the difference, and you, 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 you. Yours is yours are good. Yours are, yours uh, are yeah. I'm, good. I'm learning, but but you know, using these um, supplementary uh, washes and, and uh-huh. drying retarders that goes a long way to facilitating that. So there's technique so can, and there's tools. Having the proper tool for the job, man. Yeah. Yeah. You can't use the Absolutely. same size screwdriver for every screw. You know. <laughs> Because before, when it came to gradations, I'm like, okay, if I want to go from dark blue to light blue, that means I've got to mix, let's say, 10 different tints in between going from dark to, to light. I, I, this is before I knew what exactly the steps were. I'm like, forget that. Who has time for that? And then there, I'm going to mix all those paints, and I have to use them quickly before they dry. And then the next night, I have to do it all over again. Right. No way. You know, I'm not going to do that. I've but even now, tried that two brush two brush blending where he just has the two colors and he puts the one on this side and then the other one going the other side and just no. constantly feathering back and forth until the and that's even difficult yeah but uh, that's I think that's 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 the difference and honestly I mean having seen both of your sets of models because I mean when you do play high elves a lot of times you're I mean you're using your mix. your yeah, older models 
Um, and the old stuff, I mean, the stuff you took to Adepticon even before, that, you know, um, the, the very popping bright whites and bi- bright blues. You have a nice highlights, nice shading, um, and it pops. But then you look at the stuff you got now, and then the, the, the colors just, the, the palettes are a little more complicated. The blending's there. It's it's really, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting uh, transition to see in the same in the same sets of models. I'm I'm excited to get a fully painted army, you know, on the table, and and, and then then one day I can compare the two, and you know, hopefully it'll be a better end product. You got to take pictures of that stuff side by side, though, before you get rid of before you strip them or go to new models or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah for sure, I will. It is quite incredible to see the changes. Absolutely. So yeah, th- through my you know journey and learning, you know, hopefully uh, you and the listeners will get some out of it. And if you haven't used any of those products that we mentioned, certainly try it. I think it will help you. Uh, improve your take your your painting to the next level. All right, so um, I think that's it, ain't it? That's our that's our yeah, left. I think that's it. That's our left yeah, well. brainedness. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to just look at colors and 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 that creativity, picking colors and, and making it all work. Yep. Um, so why don't we take a break? Come back and wrap up the show. That sounds like a plan. folks, it's Dave. Are you looking for that special model to add to your army? A monstrous creature or maybe a character model? Something unusual that not everybody else is fielding on their table? Well, then you should check out Mears Miniatures at MearsMiniatures.com. Their Darklands line is full of some of the most fantastic creature models you'll ever see. And with the success of their recent Kickstarter, those models will be perfect for you to play in their forthcoming Darklands game. So whether you're looking for a new skirmish-level game to play with lots of cool monstrous creatures, or you're just looking for that extra special model to add to your existing games line, Mears Miniatures is really worth your time. Check them out at Mears-Miniatures.com. And seriously, guys, you'll be glad you did. And we're back. Episode 103. Coming to a close. In the books. Chris, you, Guy Fliegman. All together, finishing up the show. Guy <laughs> <laughs> Fleetman. Now that you told me who it is, I'm like, oh, okay. So, yeah. I'm not going to say anything. But. Yeah, okay. Uh, folks, um, thanks for listening. And don't forget, uh, please come on garagehammer.net. Join the forums. Let us know what you think about deployment and what you think about hiding your army under a table. <laughs> or Also, uh, chime in on uh, our, our painting discussion, too. Oh yeah. Uh, have yeah. you had any success with uh, you know the drawing retarder flow improver? You know what what sort of techniques have you used that worked for you? We'd love to hear it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, you know uh, you can visit our store. The store is going to be getting a, a little bit of a touch up. I mean, it runs. You can link through our website, but it's basically a Zazzle store. But we're going to be updating the merchandise and stuff like that on there, and getting some more of the new logo stuff up. Not new anymore, but I'm just too lazy to mm-hmm. make mugs and make things. We're going to get that updated. And remember, um, 
if you want some garage hammer dice, this is the opportunity to get them at a at a you know get an ex- get an extra deal on them. They roll sixes really well. <laughs> <laughs> they do, unless you really need them, and then they roll ones. I mean, no, come on. you, you say you keep on saying that, but I tell you that they roll hot. They roll sixes. I, I, Garage Hammer makes no guarantees for your sixes or fives when you roll the <laughs> dice. I'm saying that right now. And considering in our 4,000-point game how many flipping ones I rolled to wound, I, I deny the I deny the comment. I had to dump it and start playing with my black uh, my uh, my uh, uh, bad dice podcast dice. You're, you're so rolling disgusted. to one to wound had nothing to do with the Garage Hammer dice. That was all about derf ineptitude. Oh... <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. Shots have been fired. Why don't you take your? Why don't you take your uh, loose, loose, uh, loose, loosely strung bows on your little elves and, and get out of here with that nonsense? <laughs> hey, my drawstrings are taut. <laughs> All right, no I loose can... strings around here. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to turn that into a dirty comment. I'm just going to say, with that, folks, good night. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks with episode 104. Take care, guys. You've been listening to Garage Hammer. If you like the show, we invite you to join the Garage Hammer community by joining our forums at garagehammer.net slash forum or our Facebook page, Garage Hammer Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter. Follow David at Garage Hammer and follow Chris at Topher Chris U. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach David through david at garagehammer.net you can reach me, that's Chris, through chrisu at garagehammer.net. And you can reach both of us through garagehammer at live.com. If you want to help support Garagehammer, check the support page or the show store on our website. Or leave us a positive review on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening.